Commissioners, SFDPH staff, and members of the public, and welcome to the Health Commission meeting of Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. Secretary Morowitz, would you please call the roll? Oh, uh, yes. Actually, give me one second to do something on here. Um, yes, I'll start with you. Commissioner Bernal. Present. Commissioner Christian. Present. Commissioner Guillermo. Present. Uh, Commissioner Chow. Present. Commissioner Gerardo. Present. And uh, Commissioner Green. Present. All right. Our next item of business, uh, Secretary Gerardo will offer the Ramaytush Ohlone land acknowledgement. Commissioner Gerardo. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigent stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors elders and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you, Commissioner Gerardo. Our next item is Laguna Honda Hospital and Rehabilitation Center update, uh, closure plan and recertification update. For this, we have uh, Baljeet Sangha uh, and uh, welcome. Thank you. Hello, Honorable Health Commission, uh, Secretary Moritz, Director Colfax. Thank you for the opportunity to present on behalf of Laguna Honda today. Uh, also with me is uh, San Francisco Health Network Chief Quality Officer and Co-Incident Commander Troy Williams. And so moving forward, we're, I would like to start with slide number three. So um, there we go. So. What I'd like to share uh, in, in today's update is just a few, up, um, few mile marker updates of where we are for a few different topics. Starting here with this particular slide, uh, I'd like to highlight and, and uh, remind those around the settlement agreement with CDPH and CMS. And so as a matter of, uh, of uh, getting up to date on November 10th, 2022, the city and county of San Francisco, we did sign the settlement and systems improvement agreement with CMS and the CDPH. Uh, under that, we uh, receive payments ongoing until November 13th, 2023. Now, on February 1st, 2023, CMS did agree to the city's continued um, request on the pause of uh, at least till May 19th, 2023, which brings me to my next slide. Now, on uh, February 1st, with that pause until uh, May 19th, 2023, we... Um, I'd like to get you up to see on a couple items. One is, even though CMS has continued the pause of involuntary discharges and transfers, they still require an approved revised closure plan. Now, we're hopeful that we never actually have to put that plan in, into motion and into action and implement it because of our continued improvements and the future recertification that we uh, will be achieving with CMS um, uh, upcoming. Based on our progress and the negative impact to residents that the transfers would cause if resumed, we did request that CMS continue the pause on involuntary resident transfers. Uh, and so it allows us the time to really recertify without having to, to transfer anyone. All Laguna Honda residents have an update on the status of the closure plan. So there are a few points to emphasize. We have requested formally that CMS continue the pause beyond May 19th. That request has been made both verbally and in writing on, uh, in partnership with our city attorney's office. And as of today, we are still waiting a response. Now we're confident that Laguna Honda is the best place for our residents to receive care. 
an extension would allow us the time needed to recertify without having to transfer anyone. And I want to assure you that DPH does meet regularly with HHS and we remind them of how disruptive and challenging the process was last year. Now the extension is at their discretion. Our job is to request it, make it clear about the many improvements that are taking place, tell the story and the narrative of what is occurring at Laguna Honda accurately, and it's their job to then review the request and ideally approve it. Last time, we only had 24-hour notice uh, about uh, the continuation of the um, extension of the pause. You can imagine the stress and strain it has caused our residents and their families, and here we are again of just a few days out from the 19th. Now, we, do, we did not want to be in that position again this time around, um, but we are hopeful that, we'll, um, that they will act on the request soon and grant an extension. But that's um, where we are as of this point and this presentation. Moving on to the next slide, I'd like to talk about the 90-day CMS monitoring surveys. Now, as part of the settlement agreement, CMS will conduct monitoring surveys every 90 days. To date, we have now hosted two CMS 90-day monitoring <coughs> surveys, um, and the second survey did show uh, much more progress compared to the first survey. We continued to work with the, uh, the survey teams and the items that were noted during the survey process, many of which were, were addressed in real time. Now we anticipate another monitoring survey uh, here at the end of May and June now that the action plan is complete. Now in addition to the 90-day monitoring survey, CMS has monitors at Laguna Honda nearly every day and CDPH surveyors are in and out every week. Now they are ensuring compliance and if they see something not in compliance, they notify us and they cite us appropriately. Now as you know, we are under the California law of uh, if there is an unusual resident occurrence, we are required to report it. While CDPH came out on one of um, self-reported incidents, they found a case where a resident care plan was not being followed appropriately and that had the potential to cause harm. Now, no harm was caused, but the potential was there, so they pointed that out to us. We submitted our plan of correction last week, and that plan was accepted this past Friday. Uh, next slide, please. So the action plan, as I referenced it, is our blueprint for how we will accomplish the CMS recertification and remain compliant and successful in the long term. Now, every month, the quality improvement expert reports out on progress to CMS. Now, again, the, uh, the action plan is the output of the root cause analysis that the QIE performed. The action plan then includes milestones, and it started off at about 334, 330 some odd milestones, and it grew to 500. I'm really excited to update you all today on behalf of the organization that all 500 of the action plan milestones have been submitted. And this is, a, this is an incredible, huge facility-wide accomplishment and reflects an incredible amount of work, collaboration, and improvement uh, just to be done in, in a few short months. Now, this was a key component and a key fixture of the settlement agreement and is just an incredible feat and a waypoint on our path to recertification, but just uh, like to take the opportunity to recognize Laguna Honda and the staff and the residents all who participate in getting us to this point. Uh, next slide, please. This is a visual, um, this is a visual interpretation of what I just shared with you. The, the top just shares kind of my, the, the timeline for survey readiness. The middle uh, indicates the timeline for the action plan. And the bottom is just the recertification process. Um, within each of those components on this slide, there is a timeline with months and the years. And, and you can track along of where, how this all fits together in terms of timeline. Where are we today in relation to what I've described and, and uh, related to survey readiness, the action plan, and the recertification process. 
<coughs> the next slide uh, is our updates regarding our hiring for key leadership positions. And um, the, uh, the top of the slide here indicates, really uh, it represents eight positions. There are um, six bullet points. And so, sorry, seven positions and six bullet points. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about the nursing home administrator and the director of nursing. So I'm really excited to say that we have extended a conditional offer employment to a candidate. And the reason it's considered conditional is there are a series of checks that need to occur before it can be finalized. So that's a really big and exciting uh, element and uh, milestone for us here. Additionally, the role of the director of nursing, which is an important dyad partner, an important partner to that uh, nursing home administrator, we are now in the second round of interviews for that, and we're hopeful that we will be able to uh, also then extend a conditional offer and move our way down the line for filling these key leadership positions that are listed here on this slide. With that, that concludes uh, my presentation for on behalf of Laguna Honda, um, and I will stop there. Thank you, Mr. Sangha. Before we go into commissioner questions and comments, we will take public comment. Mr. Moritz has a statement to read as well as to uh, conduct the public comment session. Yes, uh, folks, just uh, I'm going to read a long statement, but know that the first um, the first remote public comment we'll take are going to be folks who've received accommodations. So only raise your hand if you've received accommodation from me for disability. Here we go. For each agenda item, members of the public will have an opportunity to make comment for up to three minutes. The public comment process is, is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community. However, the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting or for members of the public to engage in back and forth conversation with commissioners. The commissioners do consider comments from members of the public when discussing an item and making requests to the DPH. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the Health Commission at the following email address. The word health dot, the word commission dot, dph at sfdph.org. If you wish to spell your name for the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. We will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in, the, in person. We have none of those today. We will then take remote public comment from individuals who have received an accommodation for a disability. I've given each of these individuals a code to speak when they begin their comments to prevent others from speaking during this time. Finally, we will hear from uh, remote public comment from all other individuals. There will be a time limit of 20 minutes on the total amount of remote public comment that can be heard on each item. I'm sorry, from, yes, uh, each time from individuals who have not received an accommodation for disability. All right, so um, let's begin with the first person whose hand is up. Yeah, Mark, this is Patrick Manachaw, Code WW. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, sir. Please begin. Uh, slide three in Mr. Songha's presentation today claimed the first two 90-day monitoring surveys showed, quote-unquote, much progress, end quote. However, without seeing the third form 2567 from the health survey component of the extended second 90-day monitoring survey, we have no real proof about what progress has been made and what any additional citations 
in March had involved completely. LHH should demand CDPH provide that third form, 2567, since the, quote, 10-day window, end quote, to provide that form after completion of the survey is now to three weeks overdue. The California advocates for nursing home reform are also concerned about the delayed of that third form, 2567. The potential resumption of elections on May 19th is really worrisome because of Superior Court lawsuit, Charlie Golf, Charlie, dash 23 filed on May 3rd, alleging wrongful death of three Laguna Honda patients following their evictions last June and July under the, quote, initial closure plan, end quote. Multiple other lawsuits alleging wrongful death are also pending in the wings. Stop more patient evictions on May 19th. After all, Joseph Urban is absolutely right that even the new revised closure plan is flawed because it, because it doesn't provide for post-discharge close patient outcomes monitoring. The governor must be brought in rapidly to stop more patient discharges at once during Laguna Honda's attempt to become recertified. You must get Newsom, Dr. Aragon, and Dr. Galley involved in making sure that there are no more evictions starting this Friday or Saturday. Thank you. Thank you. Also, thank you to James, who's moderating our public comment today. James, please uh, unmute the next caller. Caller, please let us know you're there. You unmuted. Hi, caller, are you there? Hi, is that, is that me? Yes, that's you, Dr. Palmer. Please Hi, begin. It's, it's Dr. Palmer. Yeah, I think I'm FF. Um, I um, also submitted written commentary. Um, it is unethical, a violation of rights, and a form of abandonment and abuse to evict residents to less safe lower quality or distant facilities. Laguna Honda management and the city attorney must support direct care staff and residents by refusing to collude with unsafe discharges or discharges that violate a resident's preference for local facility or setting. Um, doctors should have a right to refuse to sign off on discharges as should nurses and social workers. This is part of their Hippocratic Oath. At this point, uh, there are, there's no place to go. Eviction equals abuse, neglect, and abandonment. Staff, residents, families, and communities must stand together, and Laguna Honda management must back up its staff. No federal or state agency has the right to demand evictions that kill, and we have a lot of evidence that we're risking that. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you. All right, now it's time for anyone else who would like to make public comment. Please uh, press star three if you'd like to raise your hand. James, please unmute that caller if it's not if it's a different person. Yes. Hi, caller. Please let us know that you're there. Hello. Yes, my name is Norman Dagelman. And hello, commissioners, first of all. My name is Norman Dagelman. I'm a longtime resident of San Francisco and a member of the Great Panthers. And I feel that uh, eviction would be a certain death sentence. So that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. That is the only public comment we have today on this item, commissioners. All right, now we'll go into commissioner comments and questions. Um, I did have a question to begin, Mr. Sangha. Um, you know, we did see earlier on in this process that there were transfers that were being required to, to be conducted uh, by CMS, and we, you know, tragically saw that I believe it's 12 residents uh, after being placed in the care of other CMS certified facilities um, had passed away. I know that the last time there was then a requirement to be in transfers, I believe it was only 24 hours notice before uh, we learned from uh, CMS that the pause on transfers would continue. At this point, we're about 72 hours away from when uh, transfers possibly would need to resume if not if the pause is not extended by cms can you just and I, I understand that there's a very productive working relationship with cms and cdph uh, at this point could you just share with us what is the impact on the laguna honda residents and their families and their staff uh, with this uncertainty about whether or not transfers may have to resume yeah i, I for the Laguna Honda residents, their families, the staff, stakeholders, the community at, at large, this is extremely, extremely anxiety-inducing and stressful. It, it is a incredibly um, frustrating time. It is stressful. Um, it causes a lot of um, unnecessary um, physiological issues, right, when you're just thinking about the what, what has to occur. Mm -hmm. So that is what I would say is what, you know, what, what, what the short answer is in terms of what, what the impacts are. Mm -hmm. What we are working on doing ensure, to ensure that our staff morale continues to remain as steadfast and strong as possible, to ensure that the fortitude with our staff and that we are inspiring our residents, not just in the work that they're seeing that we've been doing the last year, but also in the work that we're advocating for now, is we continue to, 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 show, to show them, not just tell them, but show them the improvements that we're making. Part of it is, as I mentioned, the 500 milestones that we were able to successfully submit. Those milestones, which they have a hand in also actively working on and contributing to. The other component is also sharing and highlighting with them how we are telling our story, how we use venues, such as this opportunity to engage with you all as our governing body, as well as working with uh, our partners, our, um, our union partners, uh, anyone in the community that is an advocate for us, to ensure that they're also accurately and appropriately updated around what we're doing. And so with that, the goal is to channel it back to the, stake, the, the decision makers, if you will, um, that are the recipients of our requests for the extension on the closure plan pause. And so our effort is then to highlight that to our staff to ensure that and validate how, what they're feeling. I think that's the other part that is really important for yeah. us yeah. to um, not disregard the true feelings that occur. I think that's the 
the interesting and the unique part about feelings, they will always be accurate because they are your own. Yeah. They are, you, you, one can never say you don't feel this way, mm -hmm. right? So for us, the importance is to validate that, um, remind them of the work that we're doing, ensure to them and, and remind them that our focus is the ending destination is recertification. The ending destination is stability in their, um, their, their residency um, for our residents in Laguna Honda and to ensure that our goal is to not just have them stay at Laguna Honda, but to ensure that they have the optimal lived experience they can at the organization. And so our leadership in TPH, our city leadership is then backing us up with that by sharing the message really explicitly with you know, with CDPH, with CMS, and with HHS just around that. So, so when we're able to tell that story, it doesn't eliminate those feelings of angst mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and the anxiety, um, but it certainly gives our residents, uh, their families, and our staff some level of uh, encouragement that we are not just sitting back and letting this happen, but that we are take, trying to take an active step and be in the driver's seat of our own destiny of what we're doing here. So um, that, that was more of a lengthier response, but it was a very, uh, your question was very spot on and, and there's so many components to it. So I hope that hit some of the mark. Th that did, and just maybe one or two quick follow-ups. Um, you had mentioned that, I believe it's as of last Friday, all 500 of the milestones contained within the settlement agreement had been reached. Now, those are milestones that have been agreed to by CMS, correct? And they've been certified that they've been met. Correct. Correct. Okay. And you know, lastly, I just want to certainly acknowledge the anxiety of all of the residents and their families and the staff and the potential harm that that, of course, can cause people. And really thank uh, the Laguna Honda staff for all of your very hard uh, work and dedication, working towards the recertification. You know, all of us, I think, have been, has visited Laguna Honda and seen what wonderful care is provided there and the dedication of all of the staff and the hard work that's going into it. And just again, you know, please know for you and all of your colleagues over at Laguna Honda that we are in full support of the great work that you're doing and, and are very, working very hard to be your partner in recertification. Thank you, Commissioner. I, I get to be the lucky one to to relay the work that my colleagues and everyone are doing. So I certainly will uh, make it a priority to relay that back to them. Appreciate you. Thank you, Mr. Senga. Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you, President Bernal, and thank you, uh, Valjeet, for your presentation. Uh, and I want to also acknowledge uh, and congratulate uh, you and everyone at Laguna Honda for reaching the uh, 500 milestones. You know, even saying 500 sounds like a lot. But the work that goes behind it, I mean, I, I, you know, it's hard to fathom uh, all of that ha that has to, had to happen uh, just to get to, to that. So again, congratulations uh, on that achievement and, and hope that that, indicate, that indicates uh, um, for us and for the public that uh, the work that's being put into uh, moving towards recertification is serious as hard as it is, as it is uh, and continues to be the top priority of the department and everybody who's concerned about Laguna Honda. Um, I'm also glad to hear about the progress on uh, the, the executive hires uh, that's going forward. Uh, I had a question about the, uh, the nursing home administrator. Really glad to hear that we're at the offer stage. Um, do you have a sense of how much longer it might take before we hear um, 
uh, something more definitive in terms of uh, the hire and start date and what that process might look like? Yeah, I, um, I, I don't have a specific number of days. I do know that this is a priority for our, uh, our human resources colleagues, our leadership at the DPH level, um, and even our colleagues and peers um, at the city level to ensure that we can go through the appropriate checks, um, background clearances, and ensure that everything is done as quickly as possible. Our, our goal here is um, bef before the, you know, before summer concludes, we want to do it in the, within the next several weeks just to make sure that we have this individual can come in and have the opportunity to, to do what we, what we um, were looking for in a candidate, which is come out, reinforce, build, continue to build bonds, continue to build connections with our residents, uh, with their families, with the stakeholders, Lugan Honda, with the staff. And so our, our goal is to get the, uh, get this individual in as soon as we can, so we can we have the excitement of, of uh, allowing them the opportunity to learn and meet everyone and then be a part of these future presentations and be a part of the team that will actually um, see us through to recertification. Great. Well, it's just, again, uh, good progress and glad to hear about not only the nursing home administrator, but everybody uh, that is on that, that list, uh, that list of dot points that... Uh, uh, that looks like we're moving forward. I mean, yeah, there's uh, progress on all fronts. So that, right. that's, that's the good thing. Right. And uh, again, just to let you know that we, I'm sure, um, share the frustration uh, that you have expressed with uh, the, the, the concerns about the pause. Uh, and we really do hope that in partnership with CMS and CDPH, we are going to uh, uh, end up doing the best for our residents and for uh, all the residents of San Francisco uh, with regard to um, uh, the transfers and uh, anything related to it. Thank, again, thank you again for all your work. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Christian. Uh, thank you, President Bernal and uh, Mr. Sangha, thank you for coming out today. I know you have a, a lengthy list of uh, responsibilities behind your name here, so I know your time is very valuable and we appreciate you coming in person to talk to us about this. Uh, you've um, People in the community uh, have spoken of the real harm that was caused uh, with the last transfers, and you have acknowledged the stress and uh, the harm that is caused by people not knowing and being uncertain and the clock ticking and we're 72 hours away. Has, uh, have you and your staff communicated this uh, anxiety and uh, the harm that it causes to uh, CMS, to CDPH, to HHS, and if so, can you describe how you've done that? Absolutely. I, you know, I think one of the responsibilities when when you are you have the opportunity or privilege to be in a position of, of leadership, and then you represent an organization, department, teams, um, as you all know as well, representing the Department of Public Health. Um, oftentimes, you have you you have to remind oneself that which which group and which team you're playing for, who you're representing. And so I think it's, it's um, and with that in mind, we have made it a focal effort and a focal point to in our conversations with our peers uh, at CDPH, our peers at CMS, and our peers at HHS to really <coughs> candidly share the stress and the anxiety that this has caused. And as the hours tick away, what that actually means for um, the ratcheting up of, of these emotions. And so the benefit of the working partnership that has been developed over the last year, uh, here in the last several weeks with our leaders, the Department of Public Health level with them is that we, um, well, before we weren't shy about it, but we certainly are not 
shy about conveying and relaying with accuracy the emotions of the individuals you represent. I think sometimes there might be a desire to uh, ensure that a an interaction in the moment is not, as, is not awkward or tense, but I, I, we are reminding ourselves who we represent, uh, the residents that we're actually advocating for and who are at the center of our universe and need to be, what this means for them. And so we, we have shared this both uh, in writing, we have shared it verbally in our meetings, um, and we have shared it in any venue where we've had the opportunity to engage, whether that's virtually or in person or via telephone. So, so we are leveraging every opportunity to remind uh, individuals that uh, we're certainly not okay with delays, we're certainly not okay with, with radio silence, we certainly respect the process and organizational decision making and where they have to go, but we, are, we continue to remind ourselves and then remind them who we represent and how those individuals are feeling. So, so I feel pretty confident that we, um, the CMS, CDPH, uh, HS know how we feel and where we stand at this point. Thank you for that. And as a, um, someone who has the privilege to sit as a commissioner on the Health Commission, I will just uh, you know, state for the record and to anybody else that's listening at CDPH, at CMS or HHS, that uh, we hope uh, deeply that they recognize the kind of stress and the damage that stress, uh, of course, all of these people understand the relationship between stress and physical and mental harm, that uh, a delay in communication about people's future is causing and uh, that they will, um, I'm sure they understand this and uh, that they will at the earliest possible moment when they can do it, communicate with you and uh, with us about people's futures. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Chow. Yes, uh, thank you for your uh, <clears throat> previous responses. And, and I think that it is very clear to me and I hope to the entire public that the department has been striving to respond to our questions also regarding when the pause would be ended uh, or would be continued, I should say, uh, since the end date is, as uh, Commissioner uh, Christian pointed out, less than 72 hours away. And so as a clinician, I find that uh, it's unfortunate that the state and federal bureaucracies are not recognizing the clinical implications of this to our residents and to our families. Uh, it's an insensitivity that baffles me uh, since they are within the uh, health and human service business and that their prime concern should also be residents uh, in the case of skilled nursing and obviously patients in our acute setting. So I, I think it should be very clear to everybody in this city that our staff, our department has tried its very best to get a more prompt answer than is occurring. And that every day it's obviously frustrating to all of you and to leadership that we're unable to help allay the fears and the uh, apprehensions of our residents and families. I would like to ask though also uh, beyond, and there's been great communication to staff that we've all been able to see that you've been, um, you know, sending to us. Uh, we don't see as much in terms of exactly what you're doing uh, for residents and families and uh, maybe even through the resident council or 
uh, material that is going to the families. Could you describe that a little to us? Absolutely. So, you know, any any material that we're, we're sharing, and, and as you've indicated, there are several letters, organizational updates that um, both go out to, so, so similar content, but they're tailored for residents and families, and there's also tailored for our, our staff. Uh, once we get them translated into the languages um, that are most appropriate, we do get, get those letters out just to keep folks updated on, on any matter developments, whether it was the updated closure plan, we hope to send one out very shortly around nursing home administrator role, and really keeping them updated on, on things we can celebrate, but also things to just really appreciate the reality of. We, we never want to be in a position where um, some news uh, comes, you know, quote, out of nowhere. Some things we do not have control over, so we can only communicate as soon as we know it. Um, so, so that's always been our effort, and we continue to work with uh, an incredible communications team uh, at the organization who has actually built really incredible partnerships uh, and relationships with, with uh, our staff and our residents. Now, moving forward, we have an incredible care experience team. And that group really works very hard with um, specific residents, with their loved ones and their family members, their, um, their guardians, to really provide updates um, where they are, right? So, so it's not necessarily a come and get this message, but really you know, pushing it through to make sure they have what they need, where they are, to, to know what's happening to them in their organization and where they call home. Our resident council efforts, you know, we one of the milestones that we're proud of is that we've been able to increase attendance at our resident councils and really ensure that we have more representation there and opening up larger dialogue. One of the uh, ongoing commitments to this, as a matter of fact, um, without sharing too much, is this was a component around the philosophy of our future NHA. How does one grow that relationship? How does one build on that and make sure that they are continuing to be present and get to know our residents at Laguna Honda? So not only is it a pillar of what we're trying to do now, it's a pillar of what we're building into with our future leadership as well. Because we, we, we want to keep moving forward and keep growing up um, and not, not, not um, regress by any means, but also not stay stagnant. So, so we're working very hard there. And then plus we have then the represent representatives who really advocate for our residents. So the ombudsman's office and others there. And so we're really working with, with the team to ensure that anyone in, in the uh, ombudsperson's office is able to access leadership at Laguna Honda. And again, that partnership and relationship with our care experience team is, is pretty strong. I'm happy to say that as we walk down through the hallways, you know, we, uh, myself, other leaders, we recognize uh, some of the representatives from the ombudsperson's office to, uh, and they stop us in a hallway. Hey, how are you? Hey, what's going on? Uh, any questions? And, and, and so we're building those relationships with, you might think a, a hallway conversation and, and passing, uh, you know, what does that, what does that mean? What does that build into? But it, it speaks volumes. You, you're, we are building a relationship with individuals that we feel very comfortable enough to not just say hi to in the hallway and ask how they're doing, but also that means they can ask us any questions that they may have. Uh, to fill a gap or that they believe exists or um, and a gap that we may have perceived ourselves to have filled but again communication is never perfect so we we may have communicated something and they like some clarification so so within all that commissioner chow we're, we're working to keep our residents updated making sure they have the written updates around what we're doing ensuring that we're not we are actually wa literally walking the walk and talking to talk with our representatives and our residents and then using all that as a foundation to build into because these are these are principles and pillars we need our future leaders to have and, and we're excited that uh, it, it is a philosophy that has aligned with the individuals that we we believe will be joining our organization here sh in shortly 
So um, you told us at our last meeting that uh, we were uh, to begin uh, looking at those who no longer required skilled nursing care. So could you briefly just tell us how that is going along and how this practice of working with them and uh, trying to keep them as close to home as possible is uh, working out? Absolutely. So uh, I think you're, you're, you're chatting about the, the uh, individuals who do not need skilled nursing level of care, but now um, we're being asked to discharge them from the organization. Right. Yes. They, I think there are about 40 of them. Approximately, yeah. yes, yeah. So, I, so, in, so I'll start uh, at this depth and let me know if you, you like more uh, more information. Our focus here is to work very closely with the residents, with the interdisciplinary team we've convened to figure out the best and optimal placement for these individuals and, and the residents who no longer meet skilled nursing level of care. Uh, last time I talked, and just for. Um, completion sake, some of you may have heard this, but I'll just share it again so, so we all hear it at the same time. Laguna Honda has put together an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary team called the Community Option and Resource Engagement Team, the core team. That team is composed of uh, multiple uh, entities and departments from the city that meets weekly to help identify housing and support programs that more quickly facilitate these discharges and transition the residents back into the community. So the core members include the Human Services Agency, that uh, they assist with the in-home support services, IHSS, as you've seen it as an acronym. There's a Department of Housing and Homelessness, they assist with the housing and community placement. There's the Community Living Fund, which assists with housing program placement and case management with the Institute of Aging. Then there's the Institute of Aging, which collaborates with the Community Living Fund for case management. Our DPH primary care leadership is actively involved to help establish primary care services. And then our Department of Public Health Behavioral Health team is also involved uh, to provide um, uh, case management and other primary care services. Now, the goal then is as we're working with the core team to identify stakeholders and programs that are appropriate for the resident, we want to make sure that those teams work cohesively with the resident at the center. So for example, John is ready to discharge. The Community Living Fund would do a meet and greet with John. So back to your question, Commissioner Chow, how are we engaging the resident? They would meet with John uh, to, do, um, to engage with, with him and with the discharge plan. The meeting would then identify needs and preferences and the case manager would then present John's interview to the core team along with Laguna Honda social workers and the physicians for any kind of clarifying information. And then during these meetings then, the group would coordinate services as indicated for John, whatever that may be. Uh, identified uh, intensive care ma case manager, uh, securing and confirming other services, uh, identifying any barriers that we may or may not have anticipated based on the engagement with the resident at the center, and then any other issues that relate to the client's you know, the resident's needs or, or preferences. So, so that's really how we're working on ensuring that the resident is part of the conversation. We're not talking around our residents. We're not talking um, away from them. We're actually talking with them as part of the process to ensure that we find the most optimal setting for them to transition into so they can live, you know, live their best lives and have the most optimal lived experience. So have we been able to transfer anybody yet or we're still working on it? We're still working through that. So all the steps I, I've described do certainly take uh, to do them well and to do them to ensure that our residents at the center, we, we are um, taking um, every effort to make sure that we're working with these agencies. Uh, and so we're at different, um, 
different steps in several in, in, in across across our 42 or 40 some odd residents but um, we are everything is moving forward and we're just in different uh, different stages of conversation dialogue for example some may be hey this is great everything will work well we're prepared as soon as we have a location or, or, or space others are more back and forth dialogue to help confirm understand and ensure that you know that the care is truly individualized and they really are in a place where they can um, where the resident where all their questions are answered and all their needs can be met. So thank you. Uh, if you can give us an update on how it goes uh, at your next report, that would be helpful to understand all of the uh, services that are being rendered for those members and uh, where they were uh, able to be placed. Absolutely. Thank you. I'll take that back. Thank you. Vice President Green. Yes, well, thank you for this presentation and update. And I certainly can't say more eloquently than my colleagues have how grateful we are to you, to the staff, for all the efforts you've made. I know you've worked for, through well more than two weekends in order to really support and protect our residents. And I had one question that, that's, to me, been quite perplexing. I know that the surveyors interviewed residents from time to time. In fact, there have been many interviews as part of the reports we've gotten. And I also know the identified transfer trauma in their analyses of the, of the very unfortunate and sad passings that occurred after transfer. So it, if they've identified this as a key problem and they've spoken to residents, where's the disconnect between you know, what they're doing now with this, with this deadline that they haven't really given us any indication and their own acknowledgement of the incredible negative impact of this situation. Uh, have they not asked the residents how they feel about it or are their interviews with residents so targeted to specifics? Because it would seem that if they really want to understand what's going on with this community, they have these interviews and they've talked to the residents. Is, can you tell us anything more about the content of those conversations or, or where this disconnect might lie? That's. Uh... I can sure give it a shot. Um, so the, I think when, when CDPH or a regulatory agency presents itself, they certainly are, are guided by some level of, of immediate data or fact, um, whether it was a self-reported incident or anonymous complaint or what have you. And so from there, they will, you know, they'll trace the conversation, the experience. They'll, they will interview the care team involved with the particular residents, certainly uh, if appropriate, um, and um, they will communicate and interview the resident. Uh, and so what, so that certainly is part of the calculus and part of the approach to ensure they have a holistic view before there's any kind of uh, conclusion reached, anything is substantiated or unsubstantiated. And then from there, then we, we get conclusions and ultimately if there are any opportunities or other, other reports. And what you describe though is, is a larger sample of just the experience of the residents as they undergo this overall overall experience and so for example there may be a resident in the room next door to a resident being interviewed for a focused uh, concern issue like, like I just described now I uh, I don't believe unless the, the investigation the topic lends itself to actually speak with other residents in the on the unit um, but it's usually is grounded in the topic at hand I don't believe that they are engaging around how do you feel about a closure plan how do you feel about about this I think uh, some of our residents uh, certainly are advocates they are some of our biggest fans uh, if not the biggest biggest fans and supporters and they um, do share 
here's what, what this experience is doing to us and what, what, what's happening um, with us. But in terms of a uh, comprehensive uh, conversation that occurs with the organization, I, I don't believe in that, that that is part of the approach of getting an assessment of how this delay, for example, in the closure plan, uh, the update on the closure plan request to, to extend the pause, how that's impacting. Uh, I, I believe that what you described certainly it, it does often feel like a unfortunate self-fulfilling prophecy. We want to avoid anxiety for our residents and we want to avoid the stress and apprehension and stress, you know, plethora of literature over, over decades or what stress can do. And yet by not having a definitive conclusion or de definitive answers, it only amplifies and creates the stress for onto the same very individuals that we're all coming together, all organizations are working together to, uh, to ensure it doesn't happen. And, and I think that's the part that is really um, unfortunate here. And, and we, we just, again, like, uh, like uh, many of the commissioners have, have uh, shared and questions they've posed here today, that we're continuing to do our best to, to highlight this cycle, this cycle that, that happens when, when that, first domino is flipped and kind of how this, what impact this has on our residents. And, and we keep coming back to the resident at the center. I think, you know, while, you know, hours worked, et cetera, et cetera, this is, you know, our, what I can share is that all of our staff from the leadership team down to the frontline staff, we, we know what careers we chose. We know why we chose them and we've chosen them to ensure that we can provide, uh, you know, the best, health, wellness, and experience to, to the individuals within our care. And so we just try to keep coming back to that, not just in our conversations with leadership at other agencies. Uh, and these, you know, other agencies, we, they also have chosen those careers for, for similar or the same reasons. So we just try to resonate around that and remind them that, you know, I know there's certain, again, respecting the steps that each individual organization and um, entity have to take for decision-making and other things. Um, stopping short of understanding how a system works, we just remind them that we're all on the same page, we're all in the same aim, and we're trying to actually move that forward. But, but uh, I think your questions are a spot a spot on one. Uh, it also includes some some very pertinent and, and salient feedback kind of around the process as well. Well, thank you so much for all you've accomplished, all of the milestones you've met. And, you know, as a clinician myself, I know there's a lot of lip service paid to the patient being put in the center of things. But my observation in the San Francisco Department of Health is that there's sincerity to it and reality to it. And, and you guys are an embodiment of that. And I'm, I'm just so uh, awestruck every time I, I see you in action and I see all the sacrifices you've made and dedication on the part of, of some of the most vulnerable people in, in the in this county and in the country. So we're all very grateful. Thank you, Commissioner. So Mr. Sengha, if I could, uh, first of all, and also to Mr. Williams as well, thank you for this opportunity to have a really meaningful exchange between the Commission and yourself and, and the staff to learn really all of the uh, great accomplishments that have been made on the path to recertification and the great work that's been done. There, so much information was shared during the session. I'd just like to, you know, briefly summarize it, that Laguna Honda Hospital has met all of the 500 milestones that have been set forth in the settlement agreement. Um, that Laguna Honda has put policies and procedures in place to respond to any concerns that have been raised by the surveyors. We are or are in the very late 
process of filling some really key positions at Laguna Honda, which we know is a priority for CMS and uh, CDPH, um, <clears throat> and really just keeping Laguna Honda getting and keeping Laguna Honda on course towards recertification. Really want to acknowledge all of the work that you and the leadership are doing to uh, support the very hardworking and dedicated staff. Um, and, you know, as a commission, we really uh, strongly hope that the fear and anxiety and potential harm it can cause are very soon alleviated for our residents and families and, and for the staff uh, through uh, continued pause on transfer. So just thank you again for, for your work and uh, please convey our gratitude to the entire team at Laguna Honda. Absolutely, thank you. Thank you, thank you. All right, thank you. Our next item is general public comment. Uh, again, just as a reminder to folks who may be offering comment that general public comment is for topics that do not appear elsewhere on the agenda. So only comment on items that do not appear on today's agenda are allowed during the general public comment period as opportunities have existed elsewhere for that. Secretary Morowitz. Commissioner, you skipped the minutes. Oh, geez. Do you mind if we go back? <laughs> well, let's go back to that then. Thank yes. you, I apologize. No, um, that's okay. Uh, and I'm sure I apologize to the public too, but um, I have, while we're waiting uh, to get to there, I have one quick um, edit. Uh, Commissioner Chow found an error that I made on page two. Um, the third paragraph, the sentence reads, should read, without this analysis, there is no way to prevent similar transfer deaths from occurring. I had the word now, so I've crossed off the W in the, in the final minutes. It's the uh, for, uh, fifth line down of the third paragraph. All right. Thank you, Secretary Moritz, and thank you, Commissioner Chow, for that edit. Commissioners, you have the minutes before you. Uh, without, uh, unless there are any additional amendments, is our motion to approve as amended? So moved. Second. All those in favor? Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry, this public comment. Oh, public comment. Yes. Um, uh, uh, can we please uh, have that, uh, the one hand unmuted so we can um, hear that person? Mr. Manet Shaw? Yes, Mark, I'm here, WW. Okay, great. I'm gonna make sure that, I'm gonna make sure that we're clear that this is the minutes and you have three minutes to go. I am seeing on the minutes, they're defective because they don't include Mr. Pickens' verbatim statement on May 2nd that he was hoping to receive the third health survey component CDPH form 2567 from the 90-day monitoring survey in March. And he said, and it's not recorded in these minutes, hopefully we'll receive it today, or if not, by the end of next week within the 10-day window, end quote. GPH is only provided to date as public records. The first two Form 2567s, one for the fire life safety component and the second one for the emergency preparedness ETT component of that inspection. It's been over three weeks since that extended survey component was completed. The, the third 2567 should have been released in that legally or provided to Laguna Honda in that legally required 10-day window. I was told yesterday by 
DPH's next request staff, they have no record of it. Where's that form? Since the 90-day monitoring survey, the third one could start in the next 14 days before the end of May. How are you going to be able to correct any deficiencies from the health survey component if you haven't received that form 2567 yet? You've only got 14 days um, before the end of May when the next third survey may start. And how can you have um, completed all 500 milestones if you don't know what other corrective actions may have been identified on that third 2567 health survey component form that you claim you haven't received? We, the public deserves an explanation about this, Commissioner Bernal. Thank you. All right, that's the only comment on the minutes. We do have a motion on the floor. Uh, <clears throat> is there, uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? All right, minutes are approved. And our next item is general public comment. Again, for items that do not appear elsewhere on the agenda when opportunities existed for public comment. Secretary Morowitz. Great, I'm gonna read a, a really brief statement. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission but are not on this meeting agenda. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to three minutes. The Brown Act forbids the commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda, including those raised during public comment. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Um, all right, so we've got one hand up. Uh, please unmute that person. It's Patrick again. Commissioner Bernal, Mr. Morowitz, this testimony is not about the closure plan. So please don't cut me off rudely like you frequently do. As I've testified before, the 2019 patient sexual abuse scandal at Laguna Honda resulted in a number of lawsuits against the city, DPH, and Laguna Honda. My estimate to this commission at the JCC meeting was that the case you heard in closed session would involve a $3 million settlement. I may have overstated that estimate by $1 million. It may only be $2.2 million. But there are other lawsuits pending that will probably add another million back in. Those sexual abuse lawsuits involving the public guardian from 2019 are far from over and will likely grow to six to seven to eight million alone, not including the city attorney's time and expenses fighting those lawsuits. Add to that the now pending three to five lawsuits involving the wrongful deaths of patients discharged under the closure plan. These millions in lots of expenses were entirely due to the health commission allowing the mismanagement of Laguna Honda that has gone on since 20, I mean, 2004, including the quote-unquote flow project as the quote-unquote original sin made by this health commission. We have now heard that the Board of Supervisors is concerned, 
is considering strengthening oversight of Laguna Honda Hospital following decertification, and my hope is, Commissioner Bernal, that the Health Commission be stripped of being Laguna Honda's governing body because you've done such a lousy job of it. Thank you. That is the only comment for this item. All right. Our next item on the agenda is the director's report. Uh, Dr. Grant Colfax, Director of Health. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Good afternoon. Happy to provide you with the director's report. I'm going to start with an item that is actually not written here, um, but it's very important, and it's about a uh, amazing leader at uh, DPH who is um, going to be moving on to another role, and she is here today, Anna Robert. Um, I, I believe you all know her, but I do want to just take a few minutes to uh, acknowledge her work, um, her legacy, and the fact that uh, we look forward to partnering with her uh, in her new role in healthcare in the city. So um, in the 11 years since uh, Anna joined the DPH as a nurse manager of the primary care's nurse advice line, um, she has had a tremendous impact on the department and on the health of San Franciscans. She announced last week that she would be leaving DPH to take the helm at Mission Neighborhood Health Center as her new chief executive officer. Congratulations. Uh, with her impending departure, we want to recognize Anna for her contributions to DPH, especially over the past four years as director of primary care. And what a past four years to be a director of primary care in any health department, much less in San Francisco. From her role as primary care lead on our successful EPIC rollout to her leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic, when her ability to quickly mobilize and pivot primary care services to ensure barrier-free access to testing, vaccines, and treatment for San Franciscans at highest risk of COVID-19, to building a primary care team which has led with innovation, population health excellence, to successful health disparities work, Anna has truly lived the mission of DPH to improve the health and well-being of all San Franciscans. And as a, a person who works in primary care and who has worked with Anna and witnessed uh, her leadership in all of these areas, I can attest uh, to the fact that she has truly excelled and has never let up um, and always uh, comes back and addresses the challenges that uh, we experienced over, particularly over these last uh, few years. Anna exemplifies community responsive health care, which again was most apparent um, uh, during her early days of during the early days of COVID. And she and her team stood up San Francisco's first alternate testing site and made sure that we reached out to those in our community who are high, highest risk for COVID to bring them in for testing and later vaccines. This population health approach to breaking through barriers and serving the community most at risk of health disparities also came to the surface when we dealt with the MPOX outbreak of 2022. So moving that work forward and ensuring that the commitment of primary care, the perspective of primary care, the culture of primary care was not only brought forward but sustained and even strengthened. While Anna's departure will leave a big hole and big shoes to fill for the health network primary care, 
program, we are, I, we, I am thrilled to know that she will stay focused on making the San Francisco safety net stronger as she joins the leadership team at Mission Neighborhood Health Center. One of our closest partners and a leader in its decades long service to San Francisco's Latinx communities. Our deepest gratitude to Anna for her service to DPH and best wishes to you, Anna, as uh, you move into your exciting new role at Mission Neighborhood. And I don't, Dr. Hammer, did you want to say a, a few additional words also? Um, just to add, thank you, um, Director Colfax, and um, good afternoon, uh, members um, of the Health Commission. Um, it's been one of my greatest honors um, over these last 11 years to work so closely with Dr. Anna Robert. And, um, and I have learned from her, I've been inspired by her um, and her incredible ability to use her deep knowledge of clinical operations to um, deploy our resources to where they're most needed. And she does that over and over and over again. The, the, last, the other thing I'll say is just that Anna has built an amazing primary care leadership team that has shown their resilience through all that we all um, experienced during the last three years of the pandemic. And so I have incredible um, confidence that they will continue the good work. And I'm grateful that she has um, such a strong deputy in um, uh, Carol Taniguchi, the, um, the deputy director of primary care, who will be taking over as our acting director of primary care. So, um, so thank you, Anna, for your incredible service. Really, um, huge appreciation to you and and to your family for all that they um, did to allow you to serve us with such distinction. The commission would like to invite Dr. Robert to come up to the podium if you'd like to say a few words. But first of all, I want to add uh, my gratitude to everything that has been said so far, your leadership, but particularly during COVID and MPOX, um, you know, in communities that have been were disproportionately impacted, the response of the department to provide testing and vaccination services and other supports to the Latinx community, particularly in the mission, um, is uh, was extraordinary. And we are pleased to know that you will be continuing to serve this critical community in San Francisco at Mission Neighborhood Health Center in partnership with DPH. So thank you for everything. We know you're not going far and we'll see you, we'll keep seeing you, but please, please, the floor is yours. All right. Thank you, Commissioner. So Dr. Colfax, thank you for the honor and recognition and to uh, Dr. Halley Hammer, my supervisor and really mentor uh, over the last 11 years. I've learned so much from you and thank Thanks to you, our health commissioners, um, for your advocacy and support for primary care uh, during my time here. Uh, you know, as a District 10 resident, a mother of three uh, who are navigating the public school systems, my family, friends, the community feel every day the impact and challenges in getting access to comprehensive primary care services. So I wanna thank you commissioners for your guidance, vision, and support for DPH, and always striving to make San Francisco a healthier place to, to live. And I'm so glad that I will be just around the corner and joining you all in continuing that work. And mostly I feel like this award should be shared with my husband and my children uh, who have been patient with, tolerated, and allowed my absence uh, uh, during, during this time while I was in this role. So thank you, Jorge, Santiago, Ocean, and Bianca. 
we thank your family too, so thank you. Um, I'm sure there will be more to say, but we need to finish the director's report and go through a few procedures before other commissioners speak. So please stick around for a few minutes and um, I'll invite uh, Dr. Colfax, Director Colfax, to continue with his director's report. And thank you. I'll, I'll try to go quickly through the other pieces in this uh, report that are written down and I'm happy to answer any uh, additional questions. So um, we, San Francisco DPH is encouraging MPOX vaccinations in advance of the summer season and pride celebrations. You'll recall that MPOX, formerly known as monkeypox, uh, we had a substantial outbreak um, last year and came together and really uh, did an amazing job with community uh, leadership and support in uh, preventing the spread of, of MPOX. The commissioners may be aware there are there is an outbreak on in the Midwest right now. We have not seen that happen here, but uh, we are ensuring that everybody um, uh, that, that we can is reached with the message that if they're not already vaccinated, to get vaccine for MPOX, particularly during uh, the Pride season. Uh, the other uh, component uh, that is related to MPOX here is we're also rolling out Doxy uh, Pep. But Doxy Pep is recalled that it is a it's doxycycline uh, that is taken after uh, sexual exposure. Uh, there was a randomized controlled trial, which our own Dr. Stephanie Cohen at uh, City Clinic was a, a local principal investigator of. It showed substantial reductions in syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. So uh, we are taking the initiative here uh, and aggressively rolling out and offering a doxy uh, pep to patients. And the uptake is actually quite high. I can say I've prescribed it myself uh, multiple times already, and people are very excited about it. Uh, and next item is with regard to Nurses Week at DPH. Um, very important, uh, very important to acknowledge and celebrate the incredible work that our nurses um, do every day um, and every night um, and everything in between. Sometimes I think we, uh, in, in our city system, sometimes it's not acknowledged how much uh, our nurses work, not just nine to five, but 24 hours a day. Um, from the ICU to the community and everything in between. Um, the theme of this year's Nursing Week was you make a difference. Um, we celebrated that and acknowledged our more than 1,600 nurses at DPH, uh, including, of course, at Laguna Honda, where, as you can imagine from the prior presentation, uh, the, the importance of nursing is even more highlighted. And of course, at Zuckerberg San Francisco Hospital, as well as our primary care system, and in uh, population health, where the work around MPI and uh, doxypep could not be done with, without our nurses. So just incredible uh, work, uh, acknowledgement, and celebrations. And you can read some details there, including celebrations that were held in other parts of the department. And uh, with that, um, I will just uh, bring up our COVID update. Our seven-day uh, rolling average of new COVID day cases per day is uh, uh, 30 Three and 43 people are hospitalized, including five in the ICU as of uh, May 3rd. 86% of all San Francisco residents have been vaccinated. 65% have received a boost, a booster dose, and 40% of residents have received a bivalent booster. And then you'll see the link around DPH in the news. And happy to again answer any additional questions um, or comments from the commissioners. Thank you. Secretary Moritz, is there public comment? Uh, yes. Could you unmute the one person with the hand up? Please be yes. Uh, Mark, it's Patrick. Can you hear me? Yes, please begin. It's disappointing not hearing in Dr. Colfax's director's report any mention of a revised organization chart for Laguna Honda once you hire and onboard a nursing home administrator. 
Commissioner Bernal, Commissioner Chow used to make that a priority and get a new revised organization chart published as quickly as possible. Thank you. That's the only public comment. All right, comments from commissioners. Uh, Commissioner uh, Christian. Uh, thank you, um, and hello, uh, Dr. Uh, Colfax, it's good to see you. Uh, just a quick question uh, that came up actually in our last meeting, and I thought it was a good one to uh, remind us all about. The question was about how we get the numbers about daily COVID count, and what, so what is the surveillance that leads to the count that you give us? I'm sorry, I couldn't quite hear the daily numbers on of which for what? Uh, the seven oh, for COVID? For COVID, yes. Oh, okay. So the COVID count that we get, so there, there's the numbers that we get from testing sites. Um, those numbers are not representative of the true number of COVID because there's so much home testing done right now, right? So we have to really use those numbers very cautiously. The, ho the number hospitalized is a more accurate number because it represents the number of people in the hospital uh, with COVID. It doesn't, necessarily, it doesn't necessarily represent the people in the hospital because of COVID, but it does give us a more accurate measure of people um, uh, in, in the hospital than compared to the number of just the number of tests that are being done. So we're really looking at that hospital number because you'll remember that you know, our main goal, which is now, you know, right now we're in good shape with regard to not having the hospital system overwhelmed uh, with COVID. So the testing number, I think you could, we have to be very thoughtful about what that, what that looks like. Our numbers of tests have plummeted compared to where we were. Um, but that number combined with the hospital number, combined with what we're seeing in the, in, in the regional trend and the state trend, I think, and the national trend as a whole, taken as a whole, um, it's very indicative of, you know, right now uh, COVID is, is at a relatively uh, uh, low and in, in, in a, low, a low level where it's been for, for a number of uh, months right now. Thank you for that reminder. And uh, obviously those of us who test and test positive at home, the city has no way of knowing about that unless it's reported through work or some way. So that is, that's right. So I think it's good for people to re be reminded of that when they hear the numbers that you present to us at each meeting. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to direct my remarks to Dr. Robert uh, and to first congratulate you uh, on the new gig. <laughs> um, having spent the first eight years of my professional career in a community health center just across the bay, I know how important leadership is and how personally I developed my, myself because I had a fantastic executive director and CEO who groomed me and taught me the importance of primary care and community health, particularly uh, uh, in the appropriate languages. The clinic I worked at had eight languages. Uh, and so I know how important that is to the residents uh, that uh, take advantage of primary care, uh, community-based uh, care uh, in the neighborhoods. And so I wanna thank you for uh, accepting uh, of that position. But I also wanna thank you for the 11 years that you spent serving the interests and the residents of San Francisco uh, and being part of its transformation, uh, being part of uh, the last several years uh, of uh, difficult times uh, in uh, the history of public health and for being part of making San Francisco uh, a model 
uh, for what the nation uh, saw as our response to COVID. So thank you very much and appreciate it and look for better things uh, and more things uh, in the future. Yes, well, I would echo what Commissioner Guillermo said. And, you know, you think about primary care and all around us, doctors are retiring left and right. We're having a very hard staffing primary time, staffing primary care. So many, I mean, I get asked seven times a day for a new primary care provider. And yet the people I know that work in, in the, at the general, the people I know that work in primary care at DPH are stable. The patients love them. And they're so happy to be there. And I think that has a lot to do with leadership and everything that you do in a very difficult and challenging specialty, never mind the patients that you care for. Um, we uh, had, some of us went over to Mission uh, Neighborhood Health Center. I spent an afternoon there not that long ago. In fact, the CFO was my office manager and she's actually part-time CFO of my nonprofit. So I get a lot of insider information about what's going on there. And I have to say, it's a wonderful team. The doctors there are inspiring. The patients are grateful. You're doing wonderful work in women's health, which is near and dear to my heart. So I know you're going to an organization that will be so happy to have continued great leadership and do wonderful things for the individuals in the mission. I know you've taken over some of the clinics that used to be at, at the old St. Luke's Hospital, and there's a massive need in that particular very vulnerable population to have great care and great leadership and, and great providers. And, and I know that, that you will accomplish that and, and the legacy of what you've, you've done within the department will, will be enhanced and continue at Admission Neighborhood Health. So uh, I'm sure I'll get some insider information from Sade, but I'm so glad you're going there. Commissioner Gerardo. I just want to echo everybody's uh, comments, not only of your number of years here at DPH, but taking that leadership skills, um, especially the wonderful primary care model of DPH over to Mission Neighborhood Health. And I look forward to your leadership there. My um, staff is in the pediatric clinic. We have taken the uh, mantra of DPH and we have integrated behavioral health into pediatric primary care and we love it. It is uh, continuing and the staff is very, very dedicated and wonderful. So I also welcome you to Mission Neighborhood Health as uh, I, in, with a different hat on in uh, pediatrics, um, work with uh, the wonderful people and we hope that to the integration of behavioral health into pediatrics again is uh, a model going forward. So um, I'm grateful for your work here, but also excited about um, the leadership you're bringing to Mission Neighborhood Health. So thank you. Commissioner Chow. Yes, uh, I also wanted to uh, thank you for, for your work over these 11 years and going through uh, all the transitions that primary care has. Primary care has really become uh, a stellar uh, uh, service for our department. Um, it, many years ago, it was rather disparate and everybody had their own you know, thought about what should be in primary care and we had, what, 11 different clinics with 11 different ideas. 
and uh, um, over these years, and you've been a very integral part of that, you've really built a primary care, um, a sense of belonging where I think uh, the um, members of your team, uh, all the way from the nurses up to the physicians, feel that they are part of a system now and not just simply within one or another clinic, but it pulls together. And it's clearly from leadership uh, that you have exhibited along with others and Dr. Hammer and all that have really brought uh, us a, um, I think, a premier primary care network here in the city. Uh, I know the importance of uh, Mission Neighborhood Center uh, in these uh, very many years that I've worked in the community, and I think they're very fortunate to have you going there. Um, we're fortunate that we're going to continue to partner with Mission Neighborhood, and uh, the, my um, you know very best wishes for a um, very productive future for you. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Commissioner Chow, and I'd like to associate myself, of course, with all the remarks of, of my fellow commissioners, so thank you again. I did have one more question for Director Colfax. Thank you for including the MPOX and DOCSI uh, prep information in your director's report. Of course, there's robust outreach happening within the department to affected communities, the LGBTQ community, people living with HIV, et cetera, um, <clears throat> in advance of the Pride and uh, summer celebrations. I, as someone in a target population, someone living with HIV, followed the guidance of the department and stood in line over at, SF, at, at the general and got my two shots there. Could you just go over, and I know some of it's in the report, but just for anyone who's listening, what someone like me needs to do if I've had my two doses, but also anyone who's either recently got a dose or is seeking to get vaccinated? Yeah, I'm going to have um, Dr. Susan Phillip, who I believe is on the line, our health officer, um, director of PhD, who's overseeing this program, uh, provide that additional information. Great. Dr. Phillip? Oh, I thought she was on. I'm sorry. She apparently is, is, uh, is not able to join, but we can certainly provide that um, information to you in detail at the next report. Okay, because uh, my understanding is that someone like me who's received my two doses last year would not require <laughs> vaccination and that there's a 28-day period at least between doses. Yeah. So if someone had received their dose on, I think, May 12th, they could then get their dose, their second dose 28 days later around June 10th. And I believe that is correct, but I would, I would want to make sure that Dr. Phillip and her team are here to clarify okay. and verify. All right. Thank you, Director. All right, and that concludes our director's report. Thank you again, Dr. Robert, and to your family who's here to support you. Uh, good to see you all, and we'll see more of you. All right, our next item is uh, an item about public, our Health Commission public comment procedures. We have Nicole Bond, who's the director of the Mayor's Office on Disability, here to present, and uh, Secretary Morowitz um, has some things to say in introducing this item. Yes, hi. Um, uh, before Nicole um, speaks, and by the way, um, she will be remote with us, um, just to acknowledge that the Health Commission, um, per city attorney, uh, city attorney guidance and the Office of the City Administrator's guidance, um, made changes to public comment in March of this year. It was an effort that um, uh, was communicated to and encouraged to all city policy bodies, especially those who are charter uh, policy bodies. Our commission um, accepted the recommendations as they were given. Um, it turns out that other um, 
city policy bodies had a very dis a disparate decision-making process, so there's not consistency among all policy bodies. Uh, I've received, as you all have, public comment regarding the complexity of the new procedures, and so this is an opportunity for the public to make comment, for you all to hear some um, rationale behind those changes. So, Nicole, if you could um, begin to just give us some sense of um, your part in this process and any feedback you'd like or input you'd like to give. I'm very glad to. I just want to do a sound check. I haven't um, tested WebEx from this computer for a while. Are you, you sound great. Okay, perfect. Hello, hello everyone. Hello, commissioners. I'm Nicole Vaughn. I'm the director of the Mayor's Office on Disability. And the Mayor's Office on Disability serves as the overall ADA coordinator for the city and county of San Francisco. And so part of our charge is to make sure that we have process that processes that are accessible and also usable to folks with disabilities. So very briefly, I think that Mark summarized most of where we are, but just to add, um, the part of the reason why we have remote public comment for folks with disabilities is because we knew prior to the pandemic that we needed to do a better job in making sure that we could hear from the voices of people with disabilities and with only an in-person option, it was arguably not accessible to everyone. And so the intent of uh, working with the city administrators through the mayor to uh, provide, uh, have uh, policy and practice guidance on remote public comment was to make sure we could have a more accessible process than we uh, than we had previously. And so, as Mark mentioned, we have guidance that uh, that is available for our commissions to use and uh, that was developed in parallel to uh, the Board of Supervisors legislative process before uh, we knew how their legislative vote would go on public comment. And so, and now we know that uh, commissions are um, are adopting public comment for the general public with different uh, different practices. Um, but everyone, just to be clear, is required to have a process specifically for people with disabilities. That's part of what's required uh, in order to have effective access for the meeting. And so in a recent uh, meeting of the commission secretaries, for instance, we did an informal poll of how uh, uh, commissions were handling public comment for people with disabilities and then the general public. And everyone confirmed that yes, they have process for uh, people with disabilities, although some mentioned that they because they have opted not to have um, time limits on their general public comment that um, the comment for people with disabilities has been included as part of that, which is also allowed. The intent of the guidance would, was to help the commissions understand what their options were in terms of providing accessible uh, public comment that would work for most people, if not all people. And then we are required to have a reasonable accommodation process generally for any kind of public meeting 
aside from uh, remote public comment uh, for other kinds of things. So for instance, if someone was in person and they needed uh, an in-person assisted listening device, we would, we would provide that. If they needed interpretation from a sign language interpreter, we would provide that. So just examples of something that we would have done anyway. I think that one of the things that we're finding though, um, and then I'm happy to have a discussion. That's what I'm hoping we can have today because there's been concern, I think, and some, um, and some criticism that the, um, the, the common process for some, uh, in some people's experience, feels um, exclusionary or tiered or uh, really promoting disability access in a way that is, is perhaps inconsistent. So it, first of all, I just wanted to clarify that as long as we are providing a process by which people with disabilities can participate, we are meeting at least our minimum obligation. And then beyond that, um, commissions can adopt other practices. So going back to my earlier um, example around when uh, we were checking in with the commission secretaries, some are opting to have no limit on public comment, including comment for people with disabilities. Some are opting to put a time limit on it. I've heard uh, 20 minutes is what the, uh, as you're doing now, there's also commissions that have opted 10 minutes, 15 minutes. There are some commissions that have opted for no general public comment, but public comment by request by persons with disabilities. All of these, we've encouraged these uh, options to be vetted through your uh, general uh, counsel for your departments and, and uh, any practice like this is allowed again, as long as people, there is a process for people with disabilities. So, but I think um, what I would also um, like to mention is that there, so there's been talk and concern, particularly from some people with disabilities, but also members of the general public that has um, maybe given the perception that the, the request to have persons with disabilities participate first or participate through identification is somehow um, not something that we want to be promoting. And, and so this, there's a couple of things I have to say about that. One is that for as many people that have mentioned that they're maybe not comfortable identifying as a person with a disability, there are just as many, if not more, who actually prefer to be able to identify, to be able to ensure that they have an accommodation in place and to be able to participate. And not only participate remotely, but participate first for a variety of reasons. There are uh, people that have uh, particular caregiving schedules. There are people who need to use sign language interpretation and they, you know, they need to go uh, first or have first access, I should say. And one of the things also I think that is important to note, and, and if it's 
uh, not clear about the video. I myself, I'm also a wheelchair user. I have been my entire life. And really, um, I, I, to obviously identify also as a person with a disability and, and have a very keen awareness that people are in different stages of their willingness to adopt the disability as a part of their identity or as a part of their disability culture, which certainly there is a, a very active and there has been for decades uh, a movement around disability community and disability culture. And I recognize and the city recognizes that folks are in different places with their identity around that. But one of the things that is very important to us at the Mayor's Office on Disability is when we are talking about uh, disability and having folks with disabilities um, identify that they would like to provide comment or identify themselves in any circumstance really as a disabled person, that we are uh, not only honoring that, but understanding that there is, for, for many people with disabilities, identifying as disabled people, deaf and disabled people, is a matter of pride and it is a matter of their identity. And I think one of the unfortunate narratives and unintended narratives that's come out of uh, what we've been trying so far is I think that uh, some members feel that we shouldn't be asking people with disabilities to disclose the fact that they have disability status. And so I just wanted to kind of highlight that there's there are different schools of thought on that. And we really as a city want to be promoting the idea, I think, that it is okay to identify as a person with a disability. All of that said, and then I'll pause for questions. I do truly recognize that not everybody is in that place and feels comfortable about that. And so one of the things that we've um, recommended in the cases where we've had questions about that is if people with disabilities who do not want to identify as disabled in order to provide remote public comment would then, they would just join the, the general queue um, and participate in that way. One of the benefits of identifying as a person with a disability um, uh, needing this first access is that there are, there isn't, although there is a standard limit to the amount of time that you can speak per uh, item, two minutes, three minutes, depending on how the individual commissions um, set that, there's not a limit to the number of people with disabilities who can um, identify that they would like to speak as a disabled person or request first access or disability access or reasonable accommodation or any of that language. Uh, so that is one of the benefits. But if, if folks would prefer not to identify as a disabled person, then we've been recommending that they join the general public comment queue. Uh, that's available through most commissions. Um, so, and uh, and we, we do recognize also that words like 
reasonable accommodation, reasonable modification, uh, rec even request sometimes can seem like a something that is scary <laughs> to folks. And so there are other ways that I think that we can talk about this access. And this is this is kind of how I've been uh, thinking about it, thinking through it with folks. Some people do prefer to say, I need first access or priority access. It's the same thing. And I recognize that. Um, but some people prefer to use that kind of language rather than the, the technical, more legal jargon um, that we use for those of us who are in the field and and uh, very used to um, uh, reasonable accommodation language and the phrasings that are used in the uh, ADA and the Rehab Act and the other uh, accessibility legislation that we have uh, that guides all of these principles. So I will um, pause and uh, hope, uh, hopefully that was uh, helpful, but I, I'm very happy to have a discussion or answer questions that anyone might have. Thank you, Ms. Bond. Yes, very helpful. Before we go into commissioner comments or questions, do we have any public comment? We do, um, uh, and Nicole, before we start, just a reminder that we don't uh, interact with public commenters as a discussion, but um, the commissioners may ask questions based on this, so let's just hear the public comment and the commissioners will go. Uh, James, please unmute the first person. Hi, Mark, uh, it's Patrick WW again. Thank you. Uh, uh, I've changed my last name to WW. Um, I'm glad you're having this conversation and I'm uh, glad to hear the explanation from the mayor's office of disability, excuse me. Um, as I've testified before, um, I think it's discriminatory that you require people to self-identify as being disabled in order to gain a public accommodation. I would prefer not having to be known as WWO with it screaming at people that I have a disability. So I really encourage the Health Commission to take a leadership role for every other board and commission in the city to standardize these processes and not have multiple different processes at different boards and commissions. Why don't you just get rid of the time limit since there are so few regular callers that delay you guys going out for dinner or squeezing in around the golf after your commission meetings. This was never a problem for years and years and years and years. And you never had a three-tiered policy before COVID. Now that the federal government has declared the federal emergency over, you should go back to the old way you did things years and years and years and years ago and just stop this silly nonsense. Thank you. Okay, uh, the next caller, please. Oh, hi, um, this is Dr. Palmer FF. Um, I, I think um, the three-tiered thing has actually dis is anti-democratic and has discouraged public participation. 
Um, I think if someone needs first access, you can encourage them to ask for it, but we should not have a three-tiered thing. There has been um, much less public participation since this three-tiered system began, and um, it, it's made things unnecessarily complicated. Um, the other thing I want to say is um, people who do physically go to um, testify at uh, the Health Commission have reported locked bathrooms and elevators that break down or don't work, which leads to pain and misery. So you've done two things. You've made um, public comment more complicated, having to read three paragraphs of directions before you call in, and um, you've you've made it uh, painful and uncomfortable for anyone with any kind of limited mobility to appear in person. Um, so um, I think you should just allow unlimited public comment and you should um, make sure there's decent signage, your elevators are fixed, and your bathrooms are available and accessible and there's good signage to them. Thank you. Uh, that's the only public comment. And if I may clarify, there was one meeting when um, the elevators were both broken and I wasn't notified and someone came in who was elderly. The bathroom also was on the first floor. And so that's the issue that I believe the caller is talking about, that, that there, those issues, of course, have been rectified, but that was a real issue that did happen. All right. Thank you for that clarification, Secretary Morowitz. Commissioners, comments or questions for Ms. Bond? <clears throat> Commissioner Gerardo. I just want to thank you for your excellent presentation, um, how you gave the, um, the rationale for the decision-making as far as the, um, the public comment guidelines. I really appreciated how clear you were um, and how you've gone through controversy and I'm sure you will continue to do so. But I do want to thank you for um, your presentation because it was very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad it was helpful. That's why we're here. Thank you, Commissioner Dorado. Uh, do, uh, Commissioner Chow. Uh, yes, uh, I, I want to thank you for the presentation and, and for the fact that you're saying that actually, while we have heard that uh, the uh, a tiered system for the uh, remote comment is uh, not necessarily uh, something that some people are agreeing to, that you have had uh, indication that, and, and within your own decision-making in terms of the guidelines, that this actually has come from the disability community. Is, is that uh, fair to say? I would say that, it, yes, it has benefited some people with disabilities who, who who benefit from being able to go first or give comment first or before other people. I think the thing, and I'm just kind of in listening to how we're talking about it and, and what I've heard, we've also received comment on, on this uh, issue through my Mayor's Disability Council, um, with from people with disabilities, and I, I think that one of the concerns is is how we're talking about it. When when 
when I think about disability access or when we in the mayor's office and disability are thinking about that, we're not necessarily thinking about it in terms of any kind of tier or hierarchy or any of that language, right? It's just something that we do. And so I think one of one of the things that might be helpful is to think about, and this is, I don't take this under advisement as well, and I'm happy to work with the commission, is to think about how can we talk about this in a way that isn't emphasizing that there are tears, because I'm not sure that that's exactly what we mean. I think we mean access for people with disabilities who are requesting access, and then in general public comment, but it's not one tiered over another, if that makes sense. Yes, uh, um, the advice that we're getting from the city attorney uh, was worked out with you and the disability council and is sort of recommended that uh, for the reasons that you said that uh, uh, that the uh, disability uh, uh, representatives uh, had felt that this actually uh, made sense. And uh, I, I guess that you're suggesting people could actually then uh, use different wording, uh, not to say that uh, they had a disability, but that they would like first access. And, and you would mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, accept something like that as uh, being uh, just, um, I, I guess you don't need a disability to ask for first access. Is, is, is that something that, that uh, in your experience uh, might have been, um, uh, I, I guess, abused? Well, I mean, so that's an interesting question. I don't have a direct answer to that. I mean, I think there's, that there's always a fear that people have is that when in any kind of accommodation process or modification process, there's always concern or in, and I've been doing this work for 25 years in terms of disability access and, and uh, there's concern that someone's gonna abuse it or, or not belong to the club, right? So, or, or take away access that might rightfully belong to another disabled person. Generally, in my experience, people with disabilities who request and need accommodations will ask for them. I think there's not, there's not a good way to be able to say, well, you're not really disabled, so I'm not going to do this for you. I mean, generally, our advice has also been through this process, if people are requesting access on the basis of disability or requesting a disability accommodation, our advice is to grant that whenever uh, possible, unless you have a good reason to understand that there isn't what we call a nexus between their disability and the nature of their request. In this circumstance, it's really uh, difficult to determine that. So generally we're saying people, uh, if they're asking for an accommodation or to participate first to take their word for it. So far in the, in the, in the first months of uh, this revised uh, practice, I'm not uh, hearing 
directly through MOD anyway of significant abuses to this. Uh, but it's always something that uh, we want to keep an eye on. And I certainly have uh, advised um, in situations where we have had questions about good ways to approach that if that is a concern. Um, but generally, so far, so good in terms of that. Thank you. And, and, and so therefore, um, I, I guess the other question was uh, the 20-minute uh, limit on, on non-disabled, but if we're talking about people who then didn't want to identify and then moved into that, uh, they, there, there may be an there may be a loss of opportunity on their part. If uh, so, so where did the twenty minutes come from, or is that a commission option? It's a commission option. It was a general recommendation um, because we we had made an assumption that perhaps not every commission would want to move forward with unlimited public comment, and so. We, we had to pick a starting place. And so some people are using that as a marker. Some people are, uh, uh, some commissions are using 30 minutes. Some commissions are using less time. Some, com some commissions are, are not having any time for uh, remote public comment, except in the case of a disability request. So it is, that is, that is at your discretion, the amount of time for general public comment. I see, you know, thank you very much for your um, uh, very clear answers. You're welcome. So, well, Ms. Bond, I'd like to thank you. Uh, this certainly is an iterative learning process for all of us, and there are opportunities to make just adjustments as needed if there are inequities or other concerns that are identified. Uh, we'd like to thank you for uh, not only your leadership on behalf of San Franciscans with Disabilities, but for working with our Commission Secretary, Mark Morowitz, um, and being a resource to our Commission. Uh, serving San Franciscans with Disabilities is core to our work and mission here at SFDPH, and not only is it critical for people with disabilities to have the opportunity to express their viewpoints to us, but it's also critical that we as a commission have the opportunity to learn about the priorities and concerns um, of people with disabilities and to find out how we're doing and serving them. So uh, this, this is such an important uh, issue for us. Thank you so much for joining us today and really helping us understand better and hopefully others who are listening to the process that we've adopted. Um, and again, we're, we're very grateful, thank you. My pleasure. Please invite me back anytime. I'm really to. grateful to uh, support your work and support access for people with disabilities. So thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Okay. Uh, thank you, Secretary Moritz, for organizing that session for us. Our next item uh, is DPH third quarter financial report. And for this, we have Jen Louie, our DPH chief financial officer. Hello. Good evening, commissioners. Through the chair, Jenny Louie, CFO for DPH, here to present to you the third quarter financials. Um, there's a little bit, bit of glare up on the screen, so I'm just going to be looking down on my slides um, so I can follow along. Um, the big picture uh, for um, the third quarter, uh, we are projecting a $6.9 million deficit. This is an improvement of, uh, compared to the second quarter of about $8 million when we were projecting um, $14.9 million shortfall overall for the department. 
Um, this is driven um, by multiple factors looking at um, uh, worsening of projected revenue by 2.8 million compared to second quarter, as well as 10.7 million of improvement in expenditure due to additional projected savings um, by year end. On the revenue side, overall, we're projecting 18 million um, shortfall, primarily due to the reduced census at Laguna Honda Hospital as we uh, uh, continue the recertification process and pause um, admissions. Um, in addition, uh, we are uh, now expecting a delay in the settlement of 38 million in prior year Medi-Cal waivers. Um, and this is um, partially offset by um, other favorable revenues at Zuckerberg San Francisco general sum generated as part of a fee-for-service transition, a transition to a fee-for-service model for um, at Zuckerberg. Um, I did get a question about whether or not uh, we are likely to get these revenues um, at some point. We do expect them, and I will say this 38 million is um, a projection modeled out of um, how we believe fiscal years um, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 13, 14 will be scheduled. And yet there's a gap in between, I think. Um, and so we, you know, about this time last year, we actually thought that these revenues were coming in and we did put them into the budget. Um, they still have not, um, uh, we, we've, we've worked with the California Association of Public Hospitals and they do not expect, they told counties not to expect um, the settlement uh, to come in time for this current fiscal year, so we cannot recognize it then. I do not believe they're at risk. I think it's really more a matter of time. And again, um, we are hopeful that they will come in. Um, and as a matter of practice, we are starting to budget some prior year settlements. Um, being able to uh, leverage our, um, our management reserve to be able to buffer when we have moments like this, uh, but also when we kind of know that it's out there to be able to just not do anything about it, uh, but really recognize some of the revenue to help support um, our, um, our, uh, to, uh, our budget uh, proposals moving forward. So uh, we are hopeful, um, but currently not now. Um, should the shortfall persist of 6.9 million, we will make a withdrawal from our management reserve to just uh, to even out the year um, and come in balanced. On the expenditure side, um, we're expecting to be 11 million better, um, and this is um, due to um, uh, improve, uh, Zuckerberg San Francisco General is projected to be um, 12.3 million over budget due to inflationary costs, registry costs, increased census. And I will note that these numbers are net of a $16.5 million transfer that's already been made to offset a projected shortfall. Um, again, this is an unusual situation where we do have um, a higher than expected census over um, at Zuckerberg San Francisco General. Ordinarily, these are transfers that we make at year end to balance out, as you would see, uh, but to ensure that we have sufficient balances to maintain operations at the general, we've already start, started to make some of those moves. Um, similarly, Laguna is projected to be 7.2 million over budget, and um, we have made a similar transfer of, I believe, 19 million um, to, to offset that. And I just want to confirm that. Um, uh, I know this was in my report. Um, oh, yeah, 19.8 million moving forward. 
Um, I will also just note across the department, we are seeing um, more salary savings as we move um, past the third quarter. Uh, we, get, we can get a, a better picture of where we believe we'll end up with salaries with three, with nine months of, um, of salary and payroll. And um, we are expecting improvement due to um, delays in one-time hiring um, as we added over 400 new FTE in current year positions. You know, I will also note that um, so, you know, some of the work that HR is doing, it's not for a lack of trying. I mean, they think they are, um, we're seeing a lot of people get processed through our systems, but we're also seeing sort of on the back door, um, people who are separating, retiring and the like, and it tends to be fairly common, particularly as we approach um, the summer months. So with that, you know, this, these are nine months worth of actuals, uh, but we expect that it's possible that um, these numbers um, could change by year end. Next slide, please. So just big picture in terms of where we are landing, um, you'll see that $18 million um, revenue shortfall again, um, driven by um, primarily Laguna Honda as well as uh, um, an, uh, a loss in the um, ability to project the settlement. It's offset by 11 million of good news to net out 6.9 overall across the department. Uh, next slide, please. Getting into the details, um, Zuckerberg San Francisco General is projected to be $5.6 million favorable overall with net patient revenues coming in at 80.4. Again, this is, uh, this is primarily due to transition to the fee-for-service model that I discussed earlier, but a part of this, um, uh, part of this transition um, is not all good news uh, where we are uh, uh, expecting a shortfall of about 11.6 in the enhanced um, payment plan pool. And this is um, a pool that's designed for base to um, support base rates for um, designated hospital systems. Um, with our shift of two fee-for-service, there's two different EPP pools. One is capitation and one is fee-for-service. Um, currently, we were previously in a pool with just two other counties, LA and Santa Clara. Um, we will be in good company um, since all the other counties are participating uh, all the other counties in the state are participating in the fee-for-service pool. And because of that, um, that shift, um, and because it is volume-driven, and it depends on other counties' volumes as well as our own, as they allocate the pools, um, it does make the revenue um, less predictable. Um, this revenue will be trued up probably in about 12 to 18 months from now. So we'll have a better sense, but our preliminary estimates, we believe that potentially um, there would be a shortfall of 11.8 in the enhanced um, payment plan pool. Um, on top of it, um, as I mentioned before, um, the prior year settlements of 38 million and a shortfall of, of the global payment program which is of 30.5 million. Um, this is not really a result of the fee-for-service um, shift, but really more as a result of good news in terms of Medi-Cal eligibility. Global Payment Program is basically a program that helps um, hospital systems um, support the cost of uncompensated care. And we're rewarded for, um, we receive points, it's a points-based system for services we provide uh, to the uninsured. Um, with the expansion of Medi-Cal eligibility um, over the last two years, um, we're seeing a lower level of the uninsured, which is good news, but it also translates into um, 
a reduction in the volume of services we're providing to the uninsured because they are now have coverage. And so we're projecting 30 million in the current year. We did, um, we did notice this trend as part of our budget development in February, and we did make a correction um, to this line item. So we shouldn't be seeing as significant of a variance um, moving forward into next fiscal year. Um, in addition, some good news around the GME program, the graduate medical education program at 4.4 million, um, as well as um, an improvement uh, due to a rate increase in healthy workers capitation. Uh, we are still uh, projecting a shortfall of specialty pharmacy as we await um, uh, certification for um, the specialty pharmacy plan. On the expenditure side, um, we're seeing 9.6 million uh, savings in salaries and benefits, but this is offset by shortfalls of 4.5 in contracts, 6.2 in materials and supplies, as well as um, 1.4 in uh, work order services for other departments. Uh, one thing that was slightly unusual that we saw in Q3 was also a, a slight spike in um, in our PUC work orders and gas during the winter months where the gas costs um, not of just managing our facilities went up. Um, we notably saw them at uh, San Francisco General and Laguna Honda. Next slide. So at Laguna Honda, again, the reduced census results in about 22 million shortfall. I will also note that this is a slightly better projection than we had in Q3. And so while the census um, remains low, uh, we did also, uh, uh, the state overall provided rate increases for all skilled nursing facilities that was effective um, after the second quarter of this year. And we were able to project um, uh, some uh, improvement. And so I think last in the last quarter was about 26 million and we closed the gap a little bit um, to four, but the end was more of a rate increase and no, no adjustments in our, in our actual volumes. On the expenditure side, um, we have 11 million of shortfall in non-personnel services, primarily as a result of efforts to recertify Laguna, um, and then slight savings of materials and supplies of 3.5 million due to the lower census, um, and then a slight improvement um, in terms of just minor work order savings from services to other departments. Next slide, please. On the behavioral health side, um, we're about 4 million favorable on revenues, and this is also a bit of a mixed bag. On the patient revenue side, uh, we're short about $10 million. This is driven by 13 million of a shortfall in what we're seeing in our regular behavioral health revenues for both short doyle um, as well as um, substance use uh, revenues. We did make a correction in our budget upcoming as we've seen that some of these trends are persistent. Um, there's also a small um, shortfall as a result of not hitting one uh, milestone in the behavioral health quality improvement program. Um, you know, and, this, and we are also short as we have been projecting for the last um, several quarters on our Cal AIM revenues due to a delayed start. Um, I do not, um, I believe that we are uh, working to expand the teams and with a change in um, how we can um, claim the revenue through the health plan, I believe that this uh, shortfall will not persist uh, moving forward next year. Um, offsetting these shortfalls is um, 15.8 million in 2011 realignment, which is driven by state sales tax growth. Um, and, uh, and then uh, we have a minor shortfall of uh, 400,000 in other state revenue. 
on the expenditure side, um, 1.8 million in salary savings, um, and then 8.4 million in non-personnel services and work orders, uh, primarily due to prior year encumbrances um, that can be closed out and are no longer needed. Next slide, please. For primary care, um, we're seeing a shortfall of about a million um, on the patient revenue side, um, slight adjustment for ca some Calain revenues offset by um, capitation revenue. Um, again, we're also seeing salary savings um, on um, within primary care, 5.2 million, um, and, and a minor release of annual projects um, related to the sugar sweetened beverage. Uh, this 5.2 million, um, we hope will not be sustained. Actually, we want to fill our positions um, and we are budgeted for them. And so um, it, with these and all other positions, we're hoping that once we sort of catch up with them filling all of the new positions that we've loaded into the budget in this current year, um, that these, these gaps will actually close. Uh, next slide, please. On jail health, um, similar story, salary savings of 1.8 million offset by 1.8 million of registry costs associated with it. They're also achieving a bit of um, materials and supplies savings due to um, uh, lower census within the jails itself, as well as some minor um, work order savings primarily due to workers comp. And next slide, please. And then within health network, um, uh, we are seeing a, a three million unfavorable balance. Uh, we have a little bit of good news on uh, within our health at home billing, uh, but most significantly a shortfall in our healthy San Francisco participant fees. Again, this is um, not related so much to the fee for service transition, but rather again, same thing, Healthy San Francisco is a program for people who do not have sufficient coverage um, between all of the work that we've been doing. Um, you know, with covered the state covered California, as well as um, the expansion of Medi-Cal eligibility. Uh, we were seeing reduced revenue in the healthy San Francisco co-pays. Again, a great thing, not great for or seeing the financials, but a great thing um, overall moving forward. Uh, we're also seeing just a slight um, uh, shortfall in our um, Medi-Cal County administrative activities due to um, a rate change and some lower activity there. And again, um, a delay in the CalAIM implementation in current year of 700,000, um, and then a slight shortfall in some of the healthcare accountability fees of about two, 200,000. On, on the salary side, um, 2.4 million um, of salary savings offset by about $3 million uh, as we've um, engaged in a, a contract with Chinese hospital to support some of our patient flow um, this current year. Next slide, please. And then within population health, um, shortfall about 1.2 million in patient revenues. Um, staff is still working on looking at um, the model for um, how we move forward with adult immunization and travel clinic billings. Again, we're not seeing some of the volumes we were seeing pre-pandemic with corporations sending their workers um, to, um, to foreign countries to do work. Um, and in addition, I think we are still working on public health lab billing, uh, but we did implement EPIC uh, within City Clinic, and um, we are seeing um, uh, some improvement um, in the revenues overall there. Um, and then um, again, 1.8 million of salary and fringe savings projected this time. And then next slide, please. 
Um, and then within our public health administration, which is our operations division, um, slight improvement um, and vital records fees, and then also the CMA, the uh, Medi-Cal administrative activity shortfall consistent with what we've seen with the network. Again, salaries, um, salary and fringe savings due to some vacants um, and some small savings um, within our IT project budget of 1.7 million. Next slide, please. Within our COVID response project budget, um, overall we are projecting 13.6 million of savings um, compared to our revised budget. Uh, we're projecting about 64.6 of um, expenditures um, by year end. In addition, uh, we need to do an inventory adjustment related to um, PPE that we've done for um, prior years. And this is more of an accounting thing where um, when we purchase PPE in a prior year, even though we've paid for it, it's not considered paid and used because it's in our inventory, almost like a type of asset. And so when it gets used the following year, it gets recognized. Um, and, uh, in terms of accounting, it's, it looks like a, a negative expenditure. And then um, the controller credits a prior year, the prior year purchase. And so overall it evens out, but it looks like um, it, it results um, in our reporting of uh, balances of 13.6 million overall. But no, it's like not a real expenditure savings that um, you would ordinarily see. Um, next slide, please. So specifically, um, again, the first one is really around PPE savings um, or the, the recording of PPE being used. Uh, we also have 1.5 million surplus and shelter in place um, from the closeout of that program um, moving forward. And then 400,000 shortfall in the COVID response unit due to increased um, contract expenditures, 5 million in savings projected in the community response project from uh, a reduction in projected expenditures compared to Q2, um, and then um, eight, 800,000 um, in savings in testing uh, based on current testing trends, um, and then 3.9 million in savings based on the vaccination trends we're seeing. Um, at this point, um, you know, we are not assuming any surges, and so we're streaming straight line of the current trends that we see in the COVID project. Next slide, please. So taking all of this into account, um, as I mentioned before, should the $6.9 million uh, deficit persist by year end, uh, we would take a withdrawal out of that, leaving about $116 million in reserve moving forward into um, the following year. And this would still leave us with about 4.72% of um, what our budgeted revenues are in the current budget here today. Um, I believe this concludes um, uh, my presentation and happy to answer any questions you may have. All right. Thank you, Ms. Louie. Uh, before we go to commissioners, do we have public comment? Yes. And uh, is the lighting okay for you, commissioners? Should I turn on some? I'll, I'll turn on some lights after public comment. Is that okay? Um, James, please unmute the caller. Hi, Mr. Morowitz. This is Patrick. Um, I am a little bit concerned about whether the salary savings may be contributing to the short staffing, particularly at Laguna Honda Hospital, putting additional strain on Laguna Honda staff and obviously in affecting 
the quality of care being provided to Laguna Honda Station. Today, Supervisor Melgar uh, participated in a Grey Panthers Zoom call, and she mentioned the potential that there may be a $64 million shortfall. Let me repeat that. 64 is in six, four million shortfall. Um, should the closure plan of Laguna Hunter Hospital go ahead? I don't know if she was referring, she didn't go into detail, so I don't know if she was referring to the current year fiscal, the fiscal year budget, or she's talking about the budget that would start uh, July 1st of this year. But you guys really, really need to expedite getting Laguna Honda recertified, getting admissions resumed, and um, putting this whole nightmare behind us. And to the extent that you can avoid having to extend another uh, extension to the HMA contract that expires at the end of June to avoid exacerbating a $64 million budget problem Supervisor Melgar is facing. I urge you to uh, strongly consider whether you need to extend HMA's contract. Thank you. That's the only public comment for this item. Commissioner's comments or questions for Ms. Louie? Well, I just wanted a clarification on uh, slide three, um, uh, whether we're supposed to read that as a negative 6.9 million surplus or you really meant to say deficit, that's all. Oh, and apologies. Um, this is a $6.9 million deficit that we are projecting and therefore the need um, to make withdrawal from the management reserve. Once again, you've been very, very clear, so I don't have any other questions. It's very easy to read your reports and understand our situation, so thank you. Thank you, Commissioners. Commissioner Guillermo. Uh, thank you for your presentation, uh, Jenny. I had a question on the behavioral health um, budget on the, uh, page six. Um, the uh, tw 2011 realignment um, line, can you explain that a little bit more? and? Um, whether there is a um, sort of a limit to the realignment revenues that are going to be coming from the state uh, to the counties at some point? Um, let's see. So in terms of 2011 realignment, I mean, these were dollars. Um, so just prior to 2011, uh, uh, County Behavioral Health Services received, um, used to receive um, funding directly through um, a program of some kind, not unlike Medi-Cal. And so then these dollars were realigned. And so basically, instead of having to do all of the accounting, they said counties were just going to allocate um, a portion of these expenditures, but you're going to maintain your services. Um, the 2011 realignment is um, based off of um, a state accounting of, of sales tax. And um, I do not, right now, we are not anticipating um, any changes to cap. Um, but if, is there something specific around your question? The, well, it was just the concern that because uh, revenues are in deficit generally in behavioral health, that we're sort of relying on the realignment revenues 
it looks like unexpectedly, you know, mm -hmm. more so than before. And I'm just sort of aware that if there is a change in the formula or um, uh, whether there is a cap, that, that will put us into more difficult uh, financial situation with revenues or resources available on the behavioral health side. Um, and so that, that was sort of the intent of the, the question. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. Um, overall, we, and I expect other counties, uh, we actually get projections from the state um, in terms of the 2011 realignment they think they're going to get, um, and we load that. Um, into our budget, and then there's, um, and it, you know, there was um, more positive news than expected um, compared to what the state had projected originally. Um, and then, um, in terms of the shortfall, um, in terms of our Medi-Cal revenue, uh, we did make an adjustment um, in our uh, in in our February submission for the budget, which trued up some of the revenues and balanced out. Actually, recognizing using the state projection of realignment um, moving forward for fiscal year 23-24. We, we recognize that and then did offset this. So this so this discrepancy you see that's almost flipped between realignment and, and Medi-Cal within behavioral health um, should be corrected um, in the budget to the best of our knowledge in February. I mean, I will say that, you know, it's always, you know, $10 million does seem like a lot, <laughs> but just in terms of percentage wise, um, you know, we're, you know, within less, within 5% of our revenues. Um, and I think that one of the advantages we do have is this reserve that enables us um, to actually ride out some of these fluctuations um, that are driven um, from forces just outside of the city control. Like it's driven by state formulas, allocations, projections, um, as well as rate changes um, and formula changes that we might see. Thank you. And I, I just want to comment, and I know this isn't, you know, sort of the budget time, uh, but I wanted to uh, commend you and, and all of your colleagues on the way that you are managing. Uh, the budget given uh, the challenges and the strains that have come upon us sort of unexpectedly and will probably uh, be more difficult in the future. So again, managing uh, this budget uh, is, I mean, it, it looks easy on a couple of slides, but uh, really want to congratulate you and thank you for all of the work that gets put into having to uh, make sure that the resources are available and consistently uh, uh, made available for all of the, the services uh, that we provide uh, in San Francisco to our residents. Thank you for your comments. Actually, speaking of which, there was one more question around um, whether or not we're sufficiently budgeted for inflationary. Um, and as you call within our February submission, we do add additional costs related to pharmaceuticals as well as food um, and other contractual obligations. Um, and so to the best of our knowledge, um, we use either um, CPI rates as directed by the controller's office, um, or, you know, and I know that um, our director of pharmacy, um, um, uh, Mr. Smith, will um, also do just um, surveys to just try to get a sense of which way the wind is blowing. So to the best of our knowledge, we do believe um, our materials and supplies budget is sufficient moving forward. Um, but again, it's always a little bit hard to tell, particularly now, as we still have some supply chain issues um, and you know, inflation being what it is. But um, we do believe that it's uh, the budget moving forward is appropriate. Vice President Green. Well, thank you, as always, for being so clear and talking about um, uncertainties. How are we going to incorporate the redetermination where we don't know, I don't think, how many people might now be disqualified for Medi-Cal and what that does to the, San Francisco, the healthy San Francisco, and then in 2024, 
the coverage of undocumented individuals through Medi-Cal. And I'm wondering how we, we balance that because I'm sure there's going to be a certain amount of effort needed to enroll people to help people find alternatives. Is that something we we have the capacity to really understand or, or even project? It, it seems like there's so much uncertainty there. Yeah, I mean, it is a challenge um, to determine. Um, you know, we know that there will be some people who have continued their um, coverage um, through the public health emergency that did expire. The state will slowly roll out, um, phase in those um, those uh, reapplications over the course of I don't know, but it's several months. So it's not. It, like, coverage just turns off for everyone at one time, but they're going to be slowly notifying people and saying, hey, your coverage is lapsing. And so it will be um, a sort of a slower decline, um, we would expect, if any, to that. Um, there is also um, effort within the network um, that's um, led by Office of Managed Care as well as network leaders looking at this issue uh, because there's there are some real redeterminations where people's coverage should lapse and they should. Either they have unfortunately passed away, they've moved out of county and no longer within San Francisco, and or they have income levels um, that exceed um, their eligibility requirements. Um, we, we will see some loss um, in those areas, but then we also want to make sure that the people who are entitled and eligible for coverage um, do maintain. So, and I know there are some efforts um, underway uh, to, to to make sure that we are trying to reach out to as many people as possible. It is it is a little bit of a challenge to see, but overall, um, between the improved coverage, um, it could it could even out, but it, it is it's, it's very difficult to tell, and I know many counties are puzzling over this issue as well. Yes, thank you. Great, thank you, Ms. Louie. Uh, I do have a quick question. Um, this might be one of those situations where accounting terms uh, themselves are misleading, because uh, when you look at the uh, salary and fringe benefits, which across the board are favorable to the general fund, it actually means that the, the surpluses actually mean that there are unfilled positions across the board in every department. I was particularly concerned when I saw this in the behavioral health area, given the uh, the large number of hires that we had done in the past year in behavioral health. And perhaps this isn't a question for you and more for HR, but is that something that just exists all the way across the department still? Because it does have a significant impact on you know, the workload and the strain on our existing team members. Um, as well as the services that we can provide. Um, yeah, and so yeah, I think that um, uh, HR um, will probably be best to answer this question. But I mean, working, I work very closely um, with HR, and I mean, I think that it's there's the number of positions we fill and process, um, but then at the same time, um, we also lose people on the back door when they decide to retire. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, go to another city department or go outside of the city for employment. And so it's that dynamic that we're seeing and it's not so much, um, you know, it, I mean, I'll, you know, a lack of trying on our HR's part. And um, I know we're um, looking at some of our performance metrics as we approach year end in terms of what we've accomplished at year end. Um, and I don't have the specific numbers, but it's um, unfortunately not just a question of all the inputs we have in terms of new hires. Um, and again, some of those inputs and people that we process may be also internal. Um, to our system. So like even though we yes, we finally filled that position, it may be because um, someone um, uh, competed for um, an internal promotion within the uh, department, which 
yes, we filled that position, but then um, they left a gap behind them. So no, thank you, and thank you for that clarification. But it is fair to say that the surpluses that are here are not due to new efficiencies or uh, lower than anticipated cost in providing benefits to our employees. That does just represent open positions, correct? Mm -hmm. okay. okay, thank you, thank you. Commissioners, any other comments or questions? Uh, Commissioner, question. Uh, thank you. I just want to thank you for your clear presentation and guiding us through this, these numbers and uh, this report. I appreciate it. Great. Great. Thank, thank you, you very much, Ms. Lou. Always good to have you here. Okay. Our next item on the agenda, pardon me for just a moment, is the FY2122 DPH annual report. Welcome, Michelle Coe, DPH Office of Policy and Planning. Hello. Okay. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, my name is Michelle Coe, and I'm a health program planner with the Office of Policy and Planning. I'm joined today by my colleague, Max Guerra, Senior Health Program Planner with the Office of Policy and Planning. I'm here today to, oh, Wait, slides. Uh, uh, keep talking. I'm going to. That's get my the, fault. Sorry, I should have. No, no, it's it's not your fault. I'm going to get the presentation. Oh, okay. Uh, give me a minute, please. Okay. But uh, you can keep talking. Keep going. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm here today to present the department's annual report for fiscal year 2021 to 2022. As you're aware, the annual report is required by the city administrative code. The report provides a general summary of DPH's accomplishments over the past fiscal year. This year's report has a revised design using larger font, brighter colors, and columns to help improve the report's readability. And we have incorporated the feedback we received from commissioners during the Community Health and Public Health Committee presentation. We will make note of where we have made those changes to the report throughout the presentation. Uh, the annual report opens with a welcome and message from our Director of Health, Dr. Grant Colfax. This message highlights the three feature articles in the report, which includes the COVID pandemic response, the mental health SF implementation, and an update from the Office of Health Equity and Human Resources. This message also discusses DPH's response to the overdose crisis, as well as the Laguna Honda Hospital recertification. Next slide, please. The director's message is followed by a message from Commission President Bernal. His message also includes DPH's response to the COVID pandemic, the Laguna Honda Hospital recertification, and the renovation of the Maxine Health Center. Both these messages provide our leadership's introduction to the department's activities discussed in the report. Next slide, please. The next set of sections provide an overview of the functions and services across the department. The sections start by introducing the department's two divisions and their roles in protecting and promoting the health of San Franciscans. The next section reviews DPH's true north and its six true pillars, which is then followed by the most recent organizational chart. As part of the Racial Equity Action Plan, this year's report presents demographic information on both the Health Commission and senior leadership. This data will continue to be collected and presented in the annual report each year. Next slide, please. The last introductory section focuses on the Health Commission. This section provides an overview of the structure and function of the commission, along with individual bios for each commissioner. Next slide, please. 
The next section of the report presents three feature stories that highlight some of the highest profile efforts by the department in the fiscal year. The first feature provides an overview of DPH's COVID response in fiscal year 2021 to 2022. This feature describes how DPH entered a new stage of the pandemic response, which aimed at balancing the anticipated needs of COVID with growing needs of the city as it reopened. This feature also provides highlights of our one-year anniversary of vaccinations. For example, between December 2021 and when the first doses were administered, nearly 1.4 million COVID vaccine doses had been given out, inoculating about 750,000 San Franciscans with the best defense against the virus. In addition, by the end of 2021, the city reached a new milestone with 80% of the total population fully vaccinated. This includes 70% of black African Americans and over 80% of Latinx communities being fully vaccinated. Next slide, please. The second feature discusses efforts to expand residential care and treatment. As part of Mental Health SF, DPH opened more than 160 residential care and treatment beds in 2022. DPH also opened two facilities, Soma Rise and the Minna Project. Soma Rise is one of the nation's first drug sobering centers. In its first four months of operation, 900 people visited Soma Rise to rest, eat a meal, take a shower, or receive connections to care. The MINA project supports people with mental health and substance use disorders who are transitioning from the justice system to independent living. During its first six months of operation, 50 justice-involved people received treatment, case management, and supportive counseling while residing at the MINA project. Next slide, please. The last feature provides an update from the Office of Health Equity and Human Resources. DPH continued to prioritize racial equity in, by improving human resources staffing and policies in hiring and employee experience in alignment with the Racial Equity Action Plan. In May 2022, the Office of Health Equity released its first annual equity report. Next slide, please. Following the features are 21 highlights showcasing work across the Population Health Division and the San Francisco Health Network. The highlights speak to the tremendous work across the department in areas such as healthcare services, overdose prevention, whole person integrated care, HIV services, as well as within ZSFG, the Population Health Division, and Central Administration. Since our presentation to the Community and Public Health Committee, we have incorporated feedback to add more data points on patients and clients served by each program in order to better showcase the scope and scale of these programs. I want to give a huge thank you to DPH staff who uh, helped support in drafting these highlights. Next slide, please. The next major section of the report focuses on data, starting with DPH's budget. Budget data provides information on expenditures by program and by type, revenue by source, and major investments. For example, $123.6 million was allocated to continue DPH's COVID response in the fiscal year. Next slide, please. The next data section highlights San Francisco Health Network data on visits, patient demographics, and payer type across the major systems of care. 
This section highlights how SFHN provides a wide array of services across the continuum of care. Unique patients or encounter data is provided for each of the service areas, primary care, behavioral health services, whole person integrated care, jail health services, dental care, home health, emergency, specialty care, urgent care, and diagnostic and ancillary care. Unique patients, patient days, and average stay in days for skilled nursing are also included for ZSFG and Laguna Honda hospitals. Uh, thank you for the comments by Commissioner Chow regarding behavioral health data. We want to note that behavioral health encounters have historically not been re uh, reported for the annual report, uh, but future reports will uh, explore the inclusion of this data. In addition, we have not historically included average stay days uh, for acute inpatient stays for ZSFG and Laguna Honda Hospital. Uh, but we will reach out to both hospitals about this data. Furthermore, this section also introduces, uh, includes patient demographic data by race and ethnicity, by age, and by sex and gender. In addition, payer data that shows payer sources at ZSFG and Laguna Honda hospitals is included, as well as within primary care and whole person integrated care. Lastly, each of the Health Commission resolutions adopted in 2021 and 2022 are included. Next slide, please. The report ends with an overview of the department's service sites and contractors. Included in this section are maps of the primary care and behavioral health service sites, which have been updated to reflect location changes, and a list of our community contractors is also provided. Lastly, the report includes additional DPH resources, such as where more information can be found on the Health Commission, where to get health coverage, and of course, San Francisco's COVID response. Next slide, please. Moving forward, we will look for ways to streamline the report for future years, as well as provide more programmatic data to show the scope and scale of DPH's programs and services. At this time, Max and I are happy to answer uh, any questions or comments. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Do we have any public comment on this item? I don't see a hand. Folks, we are on item eight. If you'd like to make public comment, please press star three. No, uh, no hands, commissioners. All right. Commissioner Dorado. I just want to thank you for including our uh, committee's um, feedback, <laughs> and I hope in just going forward that you will continue to count the number of people that are served. I just think um, we also need that kind of data to really kind of uh, toot our own horn of um, how many people we actually serve rather than, uh, rather than not. So I really appreciate you taking our um, recommendations. Definitely, thank you. Any other questions or comments? Commissioner Christian. Uh, thank you, President Bernal. The report is really easy to read. I like the layout. Um, I'm just wondering how it will be ultimately printed, mm -hmm. uh, uh, what kind of paper, because there are some, a couple of slides, especially the organizational chart, that I'm sure it's not going to be printed on this paper and it's just kind of impossible to read. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, we can, we'll definitely keep that in mind when we uh, print the report. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so yeah, much. The colors are great, and I think when the 
when the uh, smaller things are sharper, it's going to look fabulous. Thank you. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. All right. Vice President Green. Yeah, well, I think this is a terrific report. And I love the numbers because I think they speak louder than anything to convey the amount of work and the accomplishments of the department. Um, you know, reading this makes me feel so proud. And looking at, you know, the manpower we have to work with in everything, in every area that's been so successful, and plus understanding the community we serve in greater detail, I think is so helpful. And, um, you know, I was wondering where people who want to see this can easily find it. In other words, is there a distribution list, or is it that it'll just be on our website, or it's, it's so wonderful. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Um, yes, yeah, so for distribution, we plan to uh, provide hard copies to all of the health commissioners, um, and we plan to make it available on the DPH website. Um, we'll also work internally within the department to make sure everybody has access and is able to, you know, point any, any community stakeholders to the report. It's a great resource. Thank really. you Thank so you. much. And, and if I can chime in, I also deliver a copy to the library, so it's always on hand for the public to, yes. to go. Thank you. Commissioner Guillermo. I also want to lend my congratulations to a really well done report. I think it gets better every year. And so, and I'm also glad to hear that behavioral health data will be included in upcoming when you think about how much of our budget is spent on behavioral health and just the reality of what's happening in San Francisco with regard to substance abuse and behavioral health. It's really important. Uh, that both the demographics uh, as well as the uh, the uh, the quantity of services and the type of services that are provided that being said i think what's important about this report and to have it distributed as widely as possible is the uniqueness of san francisco's health department compared to others in the country most don't have a health network incorporated into the, the public health department and so i think it's really important for folks to see um, what San Francisco provides and how it provides, because there's always so much criticism uh, that gets focused on San Francisco and what we're, um, you know, what we're not doing or what we're not responding to. But when you think about what this health department has done to integrate, you know, uh, a, a whole health network uh, and integrate that with population health and public health, I think it's still, uh, it, it's still a model. And you know, just pointing to COVID is an, is a uh, a stellar example of how that has really sort of um, uh, uh, made a difference uh, as small as the city is, but as dense as it is, what we were able to accomplish. And so the fact that San Francisco has this integration of all the different services is really important, I think, uh, for the rest of the country and other health departments uh, to be able to, uh, to see and for us to be able to sort of toot our horn around. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Chow. Hey, yes, I, I also wanted to thank uh, uh, the uh, staff for um, accepting some of the input. Uh, and uh, um, I, I think that each year uh, the report becomes much more useful. Uh, I think that with the uh, also your, your um, uh, clicking for the websites, that was very nice so that people can actually use this and uh, will become useful. 
Um, on a small note, I, I'm appreciative of the colors you're using. <laughs> Often people are using reds or greens, and some of us are red-green colorblind, so it becomes a real problem uh, trying to distinguish. And, and, and this is really nice in terms of blues. And uh, I, I would only just comment that I, I think the, the legends could just be a little larger in terms okay. of, the, of the blocks that the colors represent. Mm -hmm. But that's, uh, you know, uh, again, a commendable uh, report for us. Uh, like uh, Commissioner Green said, we can all be very proud of the work that this entire department is doing for the uh, residents of San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Coe. Um, again, the, it's an excellent report. I particularly appreciate the highlights because not only is it important for the people of San Francisco to see the leadership of San Francisco and the San Francisco Department of Public Health, but for our own team members to see their work reflected in the report and to know the pride that we take in the great work that they do and the recognition uh, they receive. Um, I believe this is your first time presenting before the commission, so yes. welcome. Thank you so much. We often see Mr. Guerra. So, um, your presentation was excellent, and uh, thank you again for your great work on the report. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Our next item is uh, the consent calendar. Uh, these are all related to Laguna Honda, and they were approved by the Laguna Honda JCC at their May 9th meeting and recommended for approval to the full commission. Uh, let's see. Who should... Uh, uh, sorry, Commissioner Guillermo. Oh, uh, um, I, I wasn't at the um, uh, the the meeting where uh, last week where the policies were presented, so I'll defer to Dr. Okay. Chow. Commissioner Chow. Yes, uh, these uh, uh, items on the consent calendar were reviewed by the uh, two commissioners that were present. Uh, and uh, they represent also, uh, to a great extent, the uh, uh, some of the uh, issues that have been raised and, and uh, help uh, uh, represent us uh, for uh, corrections for the uh, milestones and all. So it's recommended uh, that the commission approve these. All right. Second it. All right. Uh, do we have any public comment? I do not see any comment. Folks, we're on item nine. Please press star three if you'd like to make comment. No hands. Any comments or questions for commissioners before we head to a vote? Seeing none, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Aye. Motion uh, there for the consent calendar is approved. Next, uh, again, back to Commissioner Chow for the Laguna Honda JCC committee report. Uh, thank you. Uh, in the um, uh, absence of uh, Commissioner Guillermo, I was pleased to be able to uh, report to you that we received the stand reports on the human resources re report, uh, which does show uh, a great uh, uh, you know, uh, effort and, in fact, some improvement on the uh, uh, nursing services uh, this month. Uh, we also received the regulatory affairs report, much of which you already heard, along with uh, the recertification efforts that we saw uh, this uh, afternoon. Uh, the committee was pleased to also hear about the hiring process, and you got an update today. Uh, and in our closed session, we approved the credentials report, the PIPs minutes, and the medical quality report. So that uh, ends uh, my report, and would be happy to answer any questions. All right. Any public comment? Yes, we have one comment. Please, James, please unmute. Yeah, it's Patrick again. Excuse yes, please me. Begin. Yeah, excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, for this May 9th JCC update, 
it was disappointing not hearing Commissioner Charles say anything about the fact that although President Bernal had gone to great lengths during this meeting to elicit a statement from Mr. Pickens, that Laguna Honda must be recertified before applying for a waiver to retain the 128 beds of Laguna Honda. May, the commission's May 2nd meeting minutes indicated, however, that Mr. Pickens had clearly stated that Laguna Honda has only received through, quote, verbal interactions, end quote, that recertification must be Laguna Honda's number one priority. Those minutes also clearly stated that, quote, Pickens had, uh, that Pickens had stated, quote, CMS indicated verbally, I repeat, only verbally, that a request for the waiver would not be well received before recertification is achieved, end quote. So there is apparently nothing in writing, Commissioner Bernal, preventing Laguna Honda from applying for that waiver now. You should do so. After all, there's strong community support, and now over 800 signatures on my petition, which remains available online on change.org, urging you guys to get that waiver submitted. There's nothing in the protocol in the um, regulation number that I've previously provided to you that says anything about uh, uh, making a waiver request is contingent on recertification. So it's time to stop quibbling over this and do it. Thank you. Okay, that's it. All right. Are, uh, any commissioner comments or questions on the JCC? Laguna Honda JCC. All right. Seeing none, our next item is other business. Any other business? Seeing none, we will move on. Oh, to I, I'm just checking public comments to make sure we're doing due diligence. Uh, any public comment on uh, other business? Item 11? No hands. Okay. Then our next item is a closed session. That closed session. Uh, Let's see, uh, we need to vote on whether to hold a closed session in relation to the Laguna Honda Hospital and Rehabilitation Center quality update regarding recent regulatory survey activity. Do we have a motion to hold a closed session on the uh, previously mentioned topic? I so move. Second. All right, is there any public comment? I don't see a hand. Folks, would you like to make comment on item 11, a close, uh, consideration for a closed session? Seeing no commissioner comments or questions, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Okay, we are entering closed session. All right, uh, give me 30 seconds to switch this over. A person on the line and public, um, uh, you will not see or hear us, but we will be back.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
disclose the contents of the closed session. I move not to disclose. Second. Is there a second? Second. All those in favor, or public? There's no public all, comment. All on those that. in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Okay, motion carries. We will not disclose. And our final item on the agenda is a motion to adjourn. Do we have a motion? I so move. Is there a second? Second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? We are adjourned. <laughs>